Hey, we can actually do the uh, intro this time unless uh, Outlaw like, edits it. So this is the intro. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. I've, I've been beaten down at this point, so I, I will go whichever route we want to go. All right. I guess we should. Yeah. You want to do it? Uh, sure. All right. <clears throat> You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 227. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and more using your favorite podcast app and leave us a review if you can. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on X at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all, all our social links there at the top of the page, including Slack, which we forgot to put in here. So you can head up codingblocks.net slash slack and become a part of that amazing community and with that i am alan underwood with our old intro and i am joe zach uh participating in all the right intro. beautiful all right so so outlaw is going to be out this this episode um he'll be joining us back here shortly but uh so this particular topic came up from a chat with oh man i had it in the show notes somewhere where did I put it? Brantley. Ah, Brantley. Yes, Brantley and Slack. He was like, hey, you know, we get these questions about why should we choose this database or that database or whatever. So this episode and consequently next episode, because there's so many different types of databases, we're going to be talking about various different types of databases and why you might choose one over the other. But before we get into that, somebody's got to butcher some names here. All right. So we got a couple of reviews here. Uh, we'll go with um, I. Um, oh, geez, hard. So, sorry, one, one sec. Uh, uh, I Okay. For, for I we've got Ivan, Ivan Kuchin and Mike W717. Thank you very much. And, uh, oh, geez, hold on. Spotify. <laughs> Darren Pruitt and Chutney3000. Thank you very much for the reviews. You know, we love that. We love those stars. Man, that's so amazing. You want to know what's funny? The Ivan Kuchin, it, he was on the previous episode as well, and Outlaw was struggling. He's like, so he wrote another review. It was like, you know, just trying to help Outlaw butcher some more names. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yes, thank you very much for leaving those. And uh, you've got something coming up here soon that you won't actually be at. Yeah, I'm going to have to miss it. So that's Orlando Hood Camp coming up at uh, February 24th, and uh, I'll be living in Georgia then. So, woo, and also, ah. Uh, <laughs> right? And also, ah, uh, for having to move and do all that. That's Yes, yeah, not, for sure. Not fun. No. But you should go. It's a great, I think it's a free event. <laughs> I think it was last time we went. I mean, it, it seriously is one of the better, like, code camp type events that you can go to. It was it was excellent. Yep. All right. And it is free. So, woo. It is free. Okay. And they provide lunch still and all that, right? Do they still do the t-shirts, handing out the t-shirts when you walk in? I believe so. Um, when I, I, I was helping out a little bit, but I had, had to duck out for moving stuff. So I, I don't know where it landed. It uh, depends on basically if they got enough sponsors in, or, or not. So hopefully uh, free t-shirts. It would be the first year in many years that didn't have them uh, if they didn't. So I bet they're there. Yeah. Uh, can't promise it. If you're if you're within an hour's drive of it, it's worth going to. I'd say like it's it's pretty good. Uh, so a couple extra things here. I just want to give a kudos to Dell on. So I have I have poo pooed Dell for some of their workstations because I've seen so many issues with them over the years, and 
and so I want to at least give them the fair side flip of that is I bought a Dell monitor. It's a 34, 35 inch ultra wide, whatever. Right. And I've had it just about a year and I got this. It's not, I don't know if you call it a dead pixel. It was like a, a constantly living pixel. <laughs> like it was just super bright and always ultra white right in the middle of my screen. And it was driving me absolutely crazy. So I went and looked up the information on the monitor. It actually came with a five-year warranty, which was shocking to me. I don't know of many things that do. But here's where the the pat on the back to them goes. I contacted tech support via chat, gave them the service tag. They asked me to do a few things, did them, sent them in. I had a replacement monitor at my door the next morning. Like, and. Wow with instructions on how to pack mine back up and send it back to them. So, you know, that is fantastic customer service. So, you know, big, big kudos to them and the new monitor or the replacement monitor. Don't know, don't know if it was refurb or what don't really care as long as it works. Right. And, and I still have another four and a half years on my warranty. Uh, yeah. just fantastic. That's like uh, Costco levels of, uh, of customer support. That's great. Right. Like it was, it was truly, it was surprising. Um, so, so anyways, really, really pleased with that. The next one is, you know, I've been talking about the past few episodes, you know, the cat eight type stuff. Well, tomorrow I will officially have everything in. I have the server rack or the network rack. I have, I have the, all the connectors, the, the crimpers, all that kind of stuff. So tomorrow I get the thousand feet of cat eight cable that I've been waiting a week and a half to be delivered. So yeah, here pretty soon I'm going to be starting that journey. So that should be interesting and fun. Yeah. <laughs> fun. Nice. Yep. Uh, speaking of journeys, uh, I'm about to go on a journey. Uh, I've gotten rid of a lot of my like home office furniture. I used to have like, uh, you know, those big square uh, Ikea um, shelves. Like everyone's seen them, right? They're like little ones that have like 12, 12 inch by 12 inch yeah, yeah. cubes. Uh, I had, I've had two of those forever. And it's depending on the house I was in and the situation, it's been my like, clothes dresser. It's been my, <laughs> you know, bookshelf. It's been like everything. Uh, and I got rid of them. I, I just got tired of it because they get a lot of dust in the little cubes. And mm-hmm. so unless you're like, really you know <laughs> in depth with your cleaning like going behind your books on the shelves and stuff it just they're so open they just catch everything and it just gets really gross and uh depending on where you have them like you can't easily pull them out and stuff and so stuff gets behind it and i, I was just like i'm done with this i just want like clean and simple and so uh i, I got rid of them and i don't have anything else yet so i'm gonna get to the new place and then figure it out uh but i i also have been thinking a lot about uh my kind of office setup and i am kind of sick of having uh, stuff all around me. <laughs> Maybe it's like from the move and having boxes and everything. You know, just a bunch of like half done kind of tasks, like all over the entire house, you know, that I'm just kind of ready for simplicity, but I've been thinking a lot about setting up two separate desks, one for home and one for work and no KVMs. I just have two stupid monitors. I have two stupid <laughs> keyboards. I have two mice, no switching, no more weird. Like, Hey, why is the camera? Oh, it's still on the other one. Like, just two setups. And for some reason, that sounds simpler to me. Maybe I'll feel differently about it. You know, I, I don't know. But I was kind of curious just to hear what other people do and who might have a similar situation. Like, I'm going to have a more space at the new place. So I have the room for, you know, two setups. But uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm actually making my life any easier by getting two of everything. So 
I'm sure other people will have some pretty good takes on this, but that's actually what I do. Like I have a spot where I have my work stuff set up. And when I go sit at it, like it's just set up for work. It's real easy. I don't have to figure out anything. I just sit down, turn it on and it works. And the same thing down here where I do my podcasting. If I want to do some video gaming, it's set up for that. Like I don't, there's no, there's no magical switches. I don't have to change anything. I just hit power and, yeah. and it's good. And oddly enough, even though it is two setups, it, it does simplify things because you don't have to figure out, Oh, what did I change here? What what did I do here? Because I needed to make this work for that. It's just, it's there and it's done. And I, and I love yeah. it personally. Yeah. I'm looking very much forward to that. Plus, you know, with the podcast, we have like kind of more advanced setups than I think a lot of people do. So like, I've got these big roadcaster kind of mixture things that take a lot of, a lot of room on the podcast. We've got like the boom arms and the big microphones for the podcasting and stuff. And so just having all that stuff in your face when you're trying to just like, you know, work on a ticket or something for work, is just annoying. So I want to have just more space for that. And, and same on the flip side, I don't want to have my, uh, my space heater of a work laptop, like crowding up my stuff. I'm trying to, you know, uh, get on, get on the podcast business. So, I'm looking forward to. It. I don't know, but uh, I was just kind of curious what other people thought. Especially, you know, it might be different if there was like a single button I could push, like on a KVM that actually worked and switched USB devices right. and HDMI right. and everything was great, and it wasn't like one thing is somehow left behind or you know whatever. Yeah, that that is true. For whatever reason, KVMs have like I guess since the advent of a bunch of USB devices, they've never worked perfectly. Yeah, which is bizarre, but. Yeah, you know, it's dumb. Like, even on, like, the input on my monitor, like, I, I gave up on KVM. So, I just pushed the little button down, down, over to the right. You know, I've got it memorized. Like, you know, tap, 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 tap. And now I switch my input. Sometimes it just doesn't work. And so, I got to do it again. I got to turn it off, turn it on. Like, why doesn't it, like, mess with that? You know, it's weird stuff. And, like, sometimes I'll flip back to another computer and, oh, the mouse isn't working. I've got to go crawl under the desk and, like, unplug, replug in the mouse. And the funny thing is, like, the mouse in particular, I gave up on sharing mice. So, I've got a trackpad for work and I've got a mouse for home. And sometimes the mouse just stops working. And like, they're both you, sitting I didn't even there. switch you. I didn't switch. You're plugged into the computer. <laughs> and they're both sitting there in the same spot, like on yeah, your desk. Yeah, I got to like shuffle. So every time I like switch computers, I got to like move these four things to the left and push this button five times and then swing the boom arm. You know, it's yeah. like I, I'd lose my mind. Absolutely yeah. lose my mind. Yeah, I, I think that having two dedicated setups actually makes things easier. And being that you play guitar and stuff. Yeah, it, it would make sense to because I'm sure that you hook all this stuff up via yep. all that same. If you had that in a room that was dedicated to podcasting and, you know, jamming or whatever, that makes life a whole lot easier, too. Yep. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of cables and whatnot in that room, but they're all useful. So I am I just like the idea of having that stuff like all ready to go so I can just sit down and go. And then like that's my little like Zen area. And the other area is, uh, you know. Not as in, uh, <laughs> Not but in there, yeah. at least it's like, you know, it's clean. Like everything there is for that, you know, like everything in, is in its right place and I can just kind of focus. I, you know, it's funny that you said that about like the boom arms and all that stuff. I have found that for work, the less stuff in my visual peripheral view, the better. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's really bizarre, but it actually does help me. So, yeah, it's not like maybe it's just like spending, you know, like several hours in a row. Like you almost like feel caged in or something. Yeah. It's just like having something in your face for hours is rough. Yeah. You have stuff around you all day. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, yeah. Good luck on the, uh, on the new office. I know that you were going to like put down carpets and all kinds of stuff to, to stop 
um, the acoustical yeah, I, things. I really, yeah, I definitely am interested in that. But also just like keeping things like easy to clean is a big deal. Like I like the idea of just being able to clean my room with like a leaf blower, you know? <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, just get the coffee cup out and vroom. I don't know that my wife's going to go for that one. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll try it. We'll try it. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. You let me have, yeah. Let me know how that goes. I don't think it's going to work out well for you either. All right. So getting into the topic here that Brantley brought up is again, all the types of databases out there and, and you know, why would you choose this one or that one? And we're going to, so before we even get started, right? Like this is one of those topics that people are hyper passionate about, right? Like, so whatever we say here is our own opinions or, you know, our experiences with things. And generally speaking, I'm, I I don't know if this has come across over the decade that we've been doing this show. I'm not hyper passionate about any one technology. Never have been like, I love C sharp, but does that mean that I'm going to hate something else? No, I kind of like Python. I kind of like JavaScript. I, I like Kotlin. I like, like, and the same thing when it with databases, right? Like I'm not in love with any particular technology. So, you know, at least going into this, know that when at least my opinions on the things that we're going to be talking about are just kind of like what I've experienced and, and where I see things happening. So I don't know if you want to give any preamble, Jay-Z. Uh, I'm I'm picky. <laughs> so this this should be fun. Oh um, yeah, I, I respect your viewpoint on it, and I recognize that it's probably the correct one to have. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some things that I don't love. Uh, so this this should be fun. So yes, please anybody like anybody that's listening, you know, I'm sure. And and actually, I think this will make for fantastic discussion. So. Please, by all means, like we, we don't usually say, Hey, come leave a comment on the episode or whatever, but I think this one would actually be great for some, some conversational type stuff. So, you know, head to codingblocks.net slash episode 227 and drop a comment on why you think one would be better than the other. So also another, I guess, preamble to this, there's 12 database types on this website. So we're using. Uh, this resource called db-engines.com and they have a ranking page and we'll have a link in the show notes, but if you're listening, db-engines.com slash en slash ranking. Now this globs everything together, every different type of database together and then sorts them based on popularity. Now where they get their popularity from, I have no idea, but it looks like a reasonable ranking to me. I I assume to you probably also Jay-Z, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about these things. There's 12 different types. We're only going to do six this episode because this episode would be 12 hours long. So you were about to say something. I'll save it. Okay. All right. Okay. So a few things in this goes back to designing data intensive applications, which I think even to this day is probably my favorite resource we've ever covered on this podcast. I think Jay Z is probably up there for you also. Yep. Yeah. So one of the things that they, that they sort of mention in just about every type of system there is when they're talking about data is their schema on write and their schema on read. And the difference is the schema on write you have to have a schema defined up front. So any kind of relational database you've ever looked at, you're going to have a table and all that kind of stuff, right? That schema on, right? Schema on read is, hey, 
your application has to know how to deal with whatever you get back, right? Like you don't know what's coming back. It could be anything and you just have to know how to deal with it. So I tried to put this on every one of the types that we have here to just sort of, you know, mentally help you understand, like when you go into this particular database type, this is what you're dealing with. So with that, on right sucks, by the way, <laughs> really first one. Yeah, it does. Oh, here like go. there's times when you have to, but you like, you don't, you don't do that unless you have to. Oh, right? this, this is going to be fun. <laughs> All right. So, get that out there. Yeah. Leave so, a comment. So the it. very first type of database here, and this should be no surprise to, to most anybody that's dealt with any kind of data are relational databases, also known as RDBMSs. So the very first thing, on this ranking page, their most popular ones in order, and they give five for, or they, if there's five or more, they'll give like five for the popular. Now, this is in the order that they're ranked on the page, but I want to point something out here. So, the most popular ones are Oracle, <coughs> MySQL, Microsoft SQL Server, PostgreSQL. IBM DB2, Snowflake, and Microsoft Access, which I thought was weird that it was actually in the top, whatever. Yeah. Now, here's the part I want to point out. Oracle, MySQL, SQL Server, and Postgres are one, two, three, and four in the overall list. So of all the databases out there, those are the four very most popular, period. So four of your top whatever are relational. So... Schema on right, and now let's talk a little bit about this thing. Yeah, first I gotta say, uh, you know, I I haven't used Oracle in fifteen years, but uh, I'm still kind of turned about it. I'm <laughs> gonna <laughs> <laughs> you know, try and let it go for the show. You were but, working uh, on Oracle two I or something. <laughs> who knows? It's like a whole other world, you know. Like like I mostly most of my experience have been in uh, SQL Server at the time. And like going over to Oracle, it's like, oh yeah, I know database. This is fine. Like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, what is this editor? Yeah. Why why can't I do top? You know, it's like, and you know, obviously, like I, you know, well, maybe it's not obvious, but uh, a lot of things that I, the differences I was frustrated with, I, I now have a better understanding of. Uh, but uh, it's at the time, it just really, uh, really got on my nerves, and so I've never let that go. I never got used to it after like I don't know six months or a year of using Oracle. I never got over it. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, Oracle, I think still to this day is one of the big ones used in enterprises, right? Like it's, it's massive. If, if you're not a Microsoft shop, especially, right? Yeah. If you're a Java shop, you're probably using Oracle. Um, now a couple of commonalities between these, right? Typically speaking, your primary language is going to be SQL. Now this is where what, what you were just saying, comes into play, right? Like everybody has their own flavor of SQL. So there's anti SQL, which is like the, the broadly supported version of the language. And then there's, you know, I think Oracle was PL SQL, right? Or was it P SQL? I think so. I think it's PL and T SQL for SQL server. T SQL is SQL server. And then I think Postgres is like P SQL. I can't remember the, yeah. they all have their own flavors, right? And this is what like Jay Z was talking about. I remember way back in the day with Oracle, like you didn't do inner joins the way that you do with SQL Server, which in my mind, the way that they did it in SQL Server made sense, right? Like this table inner join that table. Um, and then you'd have your, your on condition to tell it how to join the stuff in Oracle. 
I think at least back when I was working with it also a long time ago, like your join sort of happened in the where clause and it was really bizarre to, to mentally map that stuff out coming from a SQL server world. But, but the key, the key parts of this thing are their schema on, right. And what that means and probably most of you listening have had some sort of experience with these, unless you've just been living in like a Mongo world, but if that's the case, in in a relational database, you create a table with a name, then you give it columns with specific types. You know, like um, let's say you have a person's table, and, and that also, by the way, is always a thing that will will throw people into a flame. Or is it a table that's a singular name, or is it a plural name? Because each record is singular, but but it contains plurals of these. Like, right. Do you put the S on it or not? Like I, I've heard so many arguments about that. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is uh, a lot of times uh, if you have a you sort of like plugins or depending on your architecture, a lot of times uh, that plugin will uh, create its own database or maybe create its own tables in your databases. And uh, it's standards may not conform to yours. So it's like this huge, ugly, like red sore thumbs kind of sticking out. when if, when if you ever have to deal with that, yeah, and it might all caps it where yours were all, you know, uh, what what's the casing that starts with a capital? It's not. Oh, title casing? Title casing, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, there are things that can happen when tools generate things that will just drive you crazy. But, so you have your table, then you have your columns, right? And, then, and you're going to have to put a type on it, whether it's a VAR car and how many characters you're going to have in the VAR car, or whether it's an N or a float or whatever. So you have all these things that you have to define up front. And this all seems kind of good, right? Ish. Until you start getting into things like, okay, well we need addresses in there. So, you know, as, as a newbie, you're going to be like, all right, cool. So we're going to have a street address, a city state zip, right? Like, cool, done. Oh, we need, we need a, a second line address now. Oh, okay. So let's put that in there. Well, that kind of stinks because almost every, every record in your, and your table is going to have an empty second line for the database. And you're like, well, that's just wasting space because it actually takes up space on that, on that row in the database. And so you you start running into this thing. And this is why I think Jay-Z is probably like, oh, schema on right kind of stinks, right? You're stuck with it. No, no, no. So wait, did I say schema on right sucks? Yeah, that's what you said. Oh man, I'm so sorry. I meant schema on read sucks. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Schema on, schema on right is great. Okay. You got to figure it out. I'm sorry. So you like the relational <laughs> database model? Then. Oh, for sure. It's really flexible. It's got a lot of the the relational databases have like a query optimizer that like handles kind of uh, shuffling things around, so you don't have to know so much about your like application and how it's going to grow. Um, yeah, and there's just a lot of nice features that, like, because relational databases are so popular, uh, there's been a lot of evolution, a lot of money um, in that ecosystem that's oh, led right. to really cool features. Yeah, and so even things like, um, you know, like we mentioned history uh, already, like, um, like uh, ways you can kind of query relational databases in ways that would normally be awkward with like uh, contexts or CTEs, whatever I forget what it stands for. Uh, just for some really advanced features. Yeah, comment. That's right. It's just really nice and store procedures and functions. And I don't know, I, that world is just very comfortable to me. Like it, it works how I want. And I, I like that structure. You know, I like that. We've all agreed that, uh, you know, addresses are var car 255. And if you exceed that, well, that, you know, that was the rule. I'm sorry. And you say var car, not var char. Correct. Because you're That's not a, an insane person. That's, that is fair. All right. Yep. All right. 
Although, yeah. Although we don't say character, but we also don't say character. So, yeah, yeah. you know, um, yeah. And so I'm torn on it. I, I am torn on it. I do. I do like the schema on right here that where you have to define the things up front, but it does lead to some frustrations and it leads to crazy database designs to normalize things to what is it like third normal form or second normal form, whatever, like it, it can get into some ridiculous uh, runtime type queries that you need to yeah. do. They could be inefficient as heck, right? Like when you're having to join data across multiple tables, you're, you're incurring overhead. Yeah. And like this, my, it's, I, I'll probably butcher example here, but if you, there's some things that you can say in English very easily that it's hard to do in like a normalized database. Like if you will say like, I want to see products that were bought by people who bought products by this group of people or something mm. like that. And then like, Oh, now we're joining to, you know, things like multiple times these self joins and it just gets really nasty really quickly. And it's something that like, it's a concept that like makes a lot of sense. You say, well, like, well, I want to know um, what kind of cars people in Florida bought that I don't know. I'm I'm going to screw it up, but uh, you, you know what I'm saying. Like, there, there's things, uh, there's use cases you can think of that sound like they should be easy and really aren't in relational databases if you've got it normalized in the kind of the standard way. And and we'll get to a type of database here shortly that does allow for what he's saying. So, yeah. so now let's talk about one of the probably the the biggest sore spots that I think anybody that's worked in relational databases for a long time will run into. And that's the scalability. Like generally speaking, without being creative, if, if you have a SQL server or an Oracle database or whatever, and you're now you've grown to the point to where you're getting billions of records and you're using this thing. And let's be honest, everybody who has RDBMS is, that is their hammer and everything in the world is their nail. You start running into performance problems. And and the biggest issue with most relational databases just out of the box is they only vertically scale, meaning, and I say only, only is a bad word for it. The primary way to scale them is to add more resources, more RAM, more CPU, right? Like add more horsepower to it. Yep. That and if you're, Oh, sorry. Well, just to finish the thought, and the reason I say not only is because there are things like with SQL Server, right? Like you can create a cluster, and usually in that cluster, you're going to have read-only type things, right? To where you don't write to those replicas, but you can read from them. So you have these fast read areas that are all sort of getting data synced from the primary but that's sort of a band-aid because that's not really scaling out. Like you're just making it where some of the read performance and areas are better. And it also allows for failover. But again, the primary thing is just adding more resources to it to make it happen. All right. So sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to mention uh horizontally scale, horizontal scaling uh, is, you know, available in certain flavors of uh, relational databases. And it has a, a lot to do with uh, how you set it up. So you have to know about the kinds of data that you're storing, about your data patterns and usage patterns, and so you can partition it nicely. And uh, that that's um, you start to lose some of the benefits of things like I, I mentioned with the query optimizer that can kind of do things uh, after the fact and like smartly arrange and query your things in an efficient way. Like now, all of a sudden, we're saying no. Actually, the developer has to do some of that work up front because uh, that's how we need to be able to kind of split the stuff into pieces. Yeah, and it's it, I actually have a link to a pretty cool article here. Uh, from design gurus 
and it's talking about ways to scale your SQL database. And and when we say SQL, SQL has always just sort of been interchangeable with RDBMS, even though that's not what it is anymore, because it seems like every database technology out there has a SQL implementation. But you end up like, like Jay-Z said, you're sharding data and you're doing all kinds of crazy things. And if it's not built into the database engine to handle that stuff for you, man, there's a lot of code to make that happy. And it's also a pain to keep happy. As a matter of fact, I want to say that I read a, um, a tech blog from Instagram a long time ago. Like they're, when they first started off, that's how they did it. They had a, a database. I don't remember if it was MySQL or Postgres. It, it was one of the open source ones, if I remember right. And they realized that they couldn't, they couldn't handle it. So they had to create their own custom sharding and, and that's how they ended up scaling. And that's a lot of work. That's not, that's not, okay, let's turn on the sharding option, right? That's not how that works. So I'll, it, it is a big, a big thorn in the side of a lot of relational databases until you start getting into cloud offerings like Azure Cosmos DB or SQL Spanner and Google Cloud. I'm sure AWS has their own version of things as well. But I think I think about that article uh, and it's from 2012 and it's pretty funny. Um, it's on the Instagram engineering blog and they say like with more than 25 photos and 90 likes every second, we store a lot of data. I'm like, Oh, I wonder what those numbers are now. Oh man. Like, they would probably kill for those numbers now. Oh wow. That, that article was that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, man. That's a uh, pre Facebook acquisition, right? Yeah. I, right around the time I think. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Um, like 25 images per second. Like, I mean, I could do that. Like, <laughs> right as in, like, I could do that just on my cell phone right now. Yeah. Like, publishing the story about, you know, going to target. <laughs> That's amazing. Stanley cup. Oh man. So one other thing about SQL databases is there are a lot of tools built in to make them pretty performant. Right. So you have to understand it, right? You have to know about indexing and the different types of indexes, clustered versus non-clustered and, and, and the ordering of the keys and all that kind of stuff, right? But, but you can do it. You can absolutely do it. And for the most part, until you get into massive amounts of data, they're pretty good. And, and I don't know about you, Jay-Z, but it was always my experiences. Everything would be just perfect. Until there was like, it was like there was that tipping point. There's that one record that went in there that sent it over the top and now yeah. nothing worked. Fall off the cliff. Yeah. And, and I don't know what that was about, but, but that always seemed to happen at some point with any databases that grew large. So, by the way, I looked, uh, I looked up to see what it is now. People speculate based on the total number of images and yeah, you got it. So this is not a great number, but they estimate it's about 1,074 per second now. <sighs> Wow. So 44 times higher than when they wrote the article, like we deal with a lot of data. <laughs> now, now we deal with a lot of data, yeah. man. That's absolutely crazy. Uh, one other thing I want to bring up here about RDBMSs in particular, I, did, I didn't even have it in the show notes, but I was thinking about it as we were talking. These databases have truly grown to be do it all things. So we're going to be talking about all kinds of other database types here in a minute. And the reality is the relational database like SQL server, for sure. We worked with it for years. Like when you talk about document databases, they have things in there that work like a document database. When you talk about graph databases, they, they have things for that. They have analysis types. Like 
they have so many things that they've baked into it. But I want to at least caution you <laughs> to taking advantage of all that stuff because it's almost like they bolted on, right? Like it's almost like a Frankenstein. I'm not saying that they're not performant and they may not work decently well, but it's not the natural evolution of how that stuff went. And so you'll find yourself working really hard to do things that would be simple in other database systems, even though it supports it, you know, it's just, it's not always the best idea. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I was just reading the article that you mentioned, and uh, one of the things they really emphasize is how they try to keep things really simple so that uh, queries can be simple, so the use cases can be really simple, and everything's uh, easy to maintain, but also easy to, to kind of program around and, like, just minimize the traffic to the database. And uh, when you start talking about, like, different, like, normalization schemes and how you can break your data apart and to be able to query it efficiently and uh, keep your, you know, data basically... Uh, Integritous. <laughs> if you want to maintain your data data integrity, uh, then simple is not a word that you usually uh, hear <laughs> in terms of relational databases. That's it, simple model and relational databases. To, those concepts are at odds. They really are. And you know the funny part about it is, I think I think the reason why so many people like relational databases, besides the fact that they're so ubiquitous, is it's easy to mentally map what you're trying to do. Right. Yeah. But like what you just said, when you're trying to make it performant so that you can scale, now you have to think real hard about how you're going to access your data, like what needs to come back when this request is made. And that requires way more thought because you're trying to solve a problem that the relational model doesn't necessarily work right with. Yeah, you really need to design all of your applications and your kind of business around that that data model if you're going to be a schema on right and so, like, you can imagine, like, Instagram, like, the, my relational brain, when I think about Instagram, is like, okay, well, I need a user ID. That user ID has a feed. That feed has uh, entry IDs associated with it. And so, by the time you imagine, like, the query that I would write to just populate the kind of the, the basic view, there's probably, like, seven or eight tables in there. Yes. And that's going to be normalized. It's going to be great. And my database teacher would have been proud. And no way would that work with uh, the scale that that they're dealing with at at Instagram. And so what they really need is they need to be able to see like feed.get 10, Yes, you know, and they need to get the items in that feed right then. And everything that needs to happen to arrange that stuff and put it in there uh, in the right order and, you know, set all that stuff. That all needs to be handled by someone else because when you're rendering that request and you get so many of them, then you need to be able to keep it as simply as possible. Because you imagine like, 1,074 uh, images shared per second. Like how many are viewed? Right. Uh, whoa. Yeah. It's all another story. It's insane. And you can't be querying the database every time for that. It'll no. crash. It just can't do it. Uh, so it, here's something that may be interesting, fun. Do we want to sort of rank these as to each type of database type? I don't, I don't know if that'll work. Like, like it, love it, you know, neutral on it. Don't like it, hate it. Do we want to do something like that? Or do we want to skip that? Um, maybe what if we said like how common it is? Okay. Yeah. Well, that make more sense. Yeah, I think so. Let's do that. So <laughs> this one, I think being that it has the top four spots. Yeah. Yeah. It, probably the most common that you're going, yeah. going to see anywhere. Yeah. I agree. Definitely. Um, this next one's coming up though. Yeah. This next one's coming up. I'm trying to think if there's anything else about these. 
that is worth saying. I don't, I don't know that there is. I mean, I would say uh, that this is probably the default still most businesses. So if someone comes to you uh, at a bar or a party or something and it says like, Hey, I got this idea for an app. Uh, you're probably going to need a relational database for it unless it's Instagram or unless it's a kind of special case. If you know nothing else about the application other than you need some sort of application with the database, it's probably going to be best served by relational. Yeah, that's probably fair. And keep in mind what Jay-Z said a second ago about like, you might have nine tables just for some standard thing. Like, even if you think about a shopping cart, like it, we've always kind of gone back to that because it's sort of easy for people to reason about you have an order right? That's, that's going to be one table at least maybe more, but for simplicity, you have an order, you have order details. So that's the items you ordered, right? And that's going to have the amounts on them and all that kind of stuff. Then you're going to have the person, you're going to have the address. You're going to have, um, what else might you have on there? I don't know. That's four right there. That's, that's probably good enough. Let's say you have four to five tables just for that. Keep that in mind because when you're trying to paint the page, when you pull up that person's order page, it's going to hit all five of those things to paint that page, right? So yeah. that's, that is, that is where you start running into performance things because if you have a thousand customers trying to pull up their order at the same time, that's a thousand hits to the database going across five tables, right? So, so, you know, that's, that's a whole lot that, that blows out. So now yep. here we go to the next. Oh, no, this well, is next. I would say so. Before you go on, uh, the the nice thing about that kind of complexity that what it buys you is that somebody from marketing can say, hey, I need you to start showing the coupon label uh, in there when the coupon expires. And so, oh, well, okay, well, now I need to know the coupon ID. I'm going to link to the coupon table and get that information from there. Okay, so I've just added a six table to that query. That's not that bad, and it works great. But if you start thinking about, the, well, if I had stored that in as a whole document somewhere, you know, I, I said that feed and get example, you say like cart get example or order get example, and we don't have that that coupon information in there. Now it's like, okay, well, yeah, <laughs> we gotta we've got our original query and that's like staying there because we don't want to do a giant migration you know, project to kind of get that coupon information in there. So now we're gonna have to have another process that's gonna run, you know, in parallel to go get the coupons, and then we're gonna try and intersect these guys somehow because joins don't really work so well if I'm, you know, so highly optimized around a document and the data I need isn't in that document. You know, you start jumping through hoops. Yeah. So th- there's flexibility there, but it, yeah, it comes with a cost. So, it, all right, man, I keep saying that when we get off of it. I mean, we spent so much time with l- relational databases, but one other thing to keep in mind is they come with challenges, right? Like the whole, the whole purpose of a relational database is if, if we go to the order and your address type thing, right? In a, in a system, if you're using a relational database for your customer information, you have a customer and then they have their, their, let's just make it easy. There's their shipping address, right? Okay, cool. It's sort of a one-to-one thing. Well, if that, if that customer places an order now, you don't want to point to that shipping address anymore. You need to keep a, a an actual like stamp of what they did because that can never, ever change from that point on, right? Like what, when somebody places an order, that is a snapshot in time. So now you actually have to think about another storage um, approach to where maybe you have an order snapshot address table or something, right? So now you're duplicating data, even though the whole point of a relational database system is to not do that. So there are challenges that come along with that. And, and some of the things that we're going to talk about here later on in this show, will sort of address that with different storage technologies. Yep. So next, uh, next type of databases that we're going to be talking about is key value stores. 
uh, most popular here. Uh, some that we've talked about several times, uh, Redis. I, I should mention too, before we uh, go on to the rest of these, a lot of these databases have overlaps. They have different types that are supported, different models. Sometimes you can query them in more than one way. Sometimes that means that you have to kind of set it up ahead of time to be more specific, specific and kind of tune it that direction. And sometimes it just kind of works that way. Uh, so everything we hear, uh, say pretty much from here on for the rest of the show is going to have a little asterisk because it can kind of uh, function in you know more than one way. Yes, and that's true of, de- of relational database- databases a little bit, uh, but not to the same extent, not a different level. Uh, so most popular here, Redis. Uh, that's a definitely one of popular one used for caching, but also for all sorts of other things. Now, DynamoDB, you'll be hearing that name a lot. Azure Cosmos DB, another one, uh, kind of a Swiss Army knife. Uh, memcached uh, and etcd yeah so these are interesting and first let's get to the important part these are schema on read meaning you basically put whatever you want into it whatever pulls that data out is going to have to know how to use it how to recognize whatever it got back but i i want to I want to hit on one that I thought was just fantastic. So Brantley was like, you know, it'd be awesome to have an episode talking about this stuff because, you know, I'll sometimes get somebody to be like, well, Redis is fast. Why don't we just use it for everything? And this is where the devil's in the details, right? Like Redis is fast. And the reason it's fast is because it does everything in memory. So the problem with that is it's not, by default, it's not persisted to disk, right? So the whole point is a lot of times, like when Redis first came around, it was sort of used as a cache for everything, right? Because you put a key in there and then you put whatever you want into the value and now you have fast access to that value. Well, Redis has grown over time. Like Jay-Z was saying, all these things end up being Swiss army knives of some sort. Redis now has like search engine type features and all kinds of things that you can enable on it, right? Like adding plugins to it, but there is a feature in it that allows it to write its state to disk on occasion so that if you have some sort of catastrophic outage or whatever, when it comes back up, it can actually rehydrate whatever state it was in. But that's a periodic thing that doesn't guarantee you that, you know, if you're trying to use this thing for your ordering engine, uh, you're probably going to lose data, right? Like it's not made for that. It is made to be a fast in and out type of data access type thing. So, you know, you can, it's not easy to just say, Oh, well we should use Redis for this, or we should use uh, Amazon dynamo DB or Azure Cosmos DB. Although, if you were to read any documentation on Cosmos DB, they'll basically tell you it does everything on the planet. And from yeah. what I understand, it does it all pretty well. <laughs> so maybe it does, but you're probably going to pay for it too. So, yeah, I, I wish I'd used that more just because it does sound so interesting with the, the multi-model approach and everything, but I just haven't had an opportunity. You know, I was surprised not to see Zookeeper on this list. Uh, I did look it up and like the website says just straight up Zookeeper is a database. It's an in-memory database that's kind of back to file systems, uh, which I thought was interesting. It's not, you know, typically you'll see Zookeeper uh, being associated with a lot of like other type systems and other systems will use it for like managing state or kind of tracking leaders or whatever. So a lot of times you'll see database systems having Zookeeper as part of its ecosystem and it will kind of delegate parts of its the work to it. It's so good at it, which is kind of funny to kind of see that. Uh, standalone i wonder if uh, db engines has zookeeper on there i don't know that i saw it there yeah 
I think because it's a purpose built one, you know, for coordinating infrastructure, maybe that's why it's not on the list. Yeah. I don't know. So I unfortunately can't use my mouse because there's a cat on it. (laughs) They make it a little bit more difficult. So while he's looking that up, one of the interesting things about these is there's typically not a language per se around it. Like when we talked about RDBMSs, you have SQL and, and that is ubiquitous, right? Like it may be its own flavor, but it's there. A lot of times with these, with these key value stores, it's usually just some sort of put get type thing. Now, like I mentioned, Redis has all kinds of plugins. Like it actually has some really cool stuff or like doing search engine type things and, and, and all kinds of neat stuff. So, so there is like a more advanced API that you can do there, but still by and large, you're thinking programmatically how you put things into and get things out of those collections. Um, also on the key value stores. So it seems like, and I may be wrong, but when these things first came out, it seemed like it was like sort of a string was your key and a string was your value, right? Like you just threw those things in there or a string and a long or something like that. They have gotten way more advanced, right? Like every one of these probably supports, you know, whatever you want to put in there for a key and then complex data structures for the values, right? They can be objects. They can be nested objects. It could be arrays, collections, all kinds of stuff. So you can kind of put whatever you want into these things. A lot of them will support them. Zookeeper is not on here. Not in there. Yeah. I think it's because it is an infrastructural type thing. It's interesting. Yeah. They do. Uh, there's a, uh, an article that I'm not going to read all of now where it, uh, the actual article is why is Hadoop not listed on uh, DB engines, but they do mention uh, some other things that they don't include, uh, like Zookeeper. Uh, Dude, I've never, I don't think I'd ever scrolled to the bottom of this page. So just so you know, this dbengines.com, they have 300 and no, 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 no. They have 401. Entries on the page. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to tell because they sort of do a tie for the last ones. This is really bizarre. It might even be more than 401. Anyways, there's, there's 400 plus database engines on here, which is too many. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> but, um, so, so here's the next thing. And this is where dynamo DB, like, was it one of the first, like, big boy key value stores. I think it was like probably one of the the first ones that came around scalable, like just ultimately scalable. Like you can basically put as much stuff as you want in there and you're good to go. Like it'll just, you you don't have to think about the size. You just got to think about how much you're willing to pay every month. And that's really what it is. Yeah. It came out right around uh, like the, the white paper, the original white paper that dealt with the cap theorem and um, some of the stuff we talked on the show before. I forget the name of it now, the dynamo paper. Uh, like coincided with the release of Dynamo, you know, pretty closely, and uh, also the, just the rise of cloud computing in general, like AWS, and that was one of the first things that was out there for it, and so it really just like timed things really well, and so it was the first like really popular one. Yeah, and I mean horizontally scalable, right? Like you tip basically, you're not even going to know what's happening behind the scenes, but if they end up running it on ten nodes, you don't know, you don't care, right? Yeah. You, you query it, you get your stuff back, it works, life is good. Uh, oh yeah, and we we didn't mention it up the top, but uh, everything we're talking about uh, today actually dates back to like 1968. 
So in that crazy, man, <laughs> there are no new ideas in uh, databases pretty much since, you know, the sixties. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, when you say like this, it's the first, you know, big popular, whatever we're talking like kind of, uh, socially. Yeah. The first one that was well adopted in, in the programming industry, probably, uh, these things also are hyper performant. Um, and, and again, when these things first started out, like they were pretty simple key value stores, right? Like there wasn't a whole lot of functionality to them. Well, as people started using these and, and their desires for, for features or whatever grew, a lot of these have also added features. Like I said, um, the, the Redis one has tons, tons of like plugins and, and add-ons you can use. And even, even Dynamo, Dynamo DB has new extended fun or not new, but extended functionality where you can index by, by more than one key. So you can have a, a primary and a secondary sorting key so that you can actually make filtering and searching faster within the collection. So, you know, these things have added things on as time has gone on, but their core functionality started as key value pairs. Yeah, it's Redis streams now too. It's kind of like Kafka type behavior, dude. It's insane. And that so here's a hint. I did or not a hint, maybe a tip. Um, I didn't put this as, as my tip at the end, but in all honesty, all the databases that we have li- uh, listed here, it's worth going to their pages. Like if you go to the Redis page, and and you go to like. Uh, was it resources? Maybe it was core capabilities. Um, it, if you go to their pages and you just start browsing some of the documents, my goodness, the amount of cool stuff you can find out, like um, we'll get to it in a little bit, but a lot of these companies, I don't know if Redis does, but they'll have like white papers and use case studies and all kinds of things. So you can sort of get an idea of, what that technology works really well for. Like one of the white papers I saw for Redis was using it as a query cache, right? So if, if you're querying a database that has, like we were talking about earlier, if you've got a lot of traffic to your database and stack overflow does this, they actually had it in their design paper that we've mentioned so many times, they would actually cache results, search results so that the next time somebody searched for something, it wasn't hitting that search engine it wasn't hitting SQL server. It just hit Redis and then served it up from there. Right. So they're not actually taxing their back end, and, and they have all kinds of use cases like that. So worth going to each one of these database sites and just looking at what they have. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. Just don't put your email in to get the PDF. It's a trap. Oh man, it really is. That's why you use mailinator. Right. <laughs> it usually works on all of them. Not, not every one of them. All right, so next one. You want to grab this one? Yep. Uh, so document stores. Uh, this is uh, databases that basically will store uh, an object, uh, and you're able to query uh, and retrieve that object, and you're able to make like partial updates to that object. A lot of times you'll have secondary indexes and just better query ability in general than the key value stores. Uh, so some popular ones there, MongoDB, uh, Amazon Dynamo again, uh, Databricks, uh, Azure, Cosmos DB, and Couchbase popular here. And these are uh, well known for being schema on read, which is uh, nice sometimes and not so nice uh, on others. Uh, like I kind of mentioned up at the top of the show, um, nice things about schema on read is that if you don't know a lot about the kind of data that you are going to be getting and you don't want to lose it, it's nice to be able to kind of shove that in there and then deal with the repercussions later. 
Uh, the downside is without that normalized data schema, you know, it's easy for people to make mistakes that are hard to kind of fix. Like this uh, service is putting in integers here and this one's putting in longs or this one's putting in strings and this one's named a little bit different. We didn't realize the bug until way later. Uh, you know, all, of the, all that sort of stuff gets really messy. And as your organization gets bigger and more services talk to that stuff, it kind of takes on a, a life of its own that could be frustrating to deal with. So that's why I kind of hate on it a lot. Yeah, so at the beginning when he said that he didn't like the the schema on write, he actually meant he didn't like schema on read, which is what all these are. And so what he was saying there, if it's not ultimately clear to you, it's the interesting and powerful thing about these, but also the thing that can really shoot yourself in the foot is we mentioned like a person's table earlier in one of the relational databases, right? And you have a first name, last name, address, whatever. Uh, you can have a person's collection because that's what they're called in object databases. You can have a person's collection and you can put a car in there, right? It's like it doesn't care. You put any documents in there you want. It, it's just a, it's just a container for your data, whatever type of data you want to put in it. So, so it's very much up to you to make sure that you're sort of keeping your house clean when you're, when you're doing these things. Now, yeah. Go ahead. It requires a lot of discipline. It does. And uh, that can be really tough if you're not a disciplined organization. Like if you have a, a really tight uh, API around it and everything uses that API, then great. Uh, if you don't, then it's going to drift. And like we've seen, we've talked about cases before where it's like this service uses negative one to mean everything. Uh, this one uses null to mean everything. This one uses 99 to mean everything. <laughs> and we've seen all yeah. three of those. <laughs> yeah. And like it, things can get confused. And so you get a database, you get a call back and you get, uh, you know, a number and you think you're just getting a number and you don't realize that there's these weird special rules in there that, uh, you know, you have to know in your application logic. And then you start searching around uh, the code base for it and you see examples of uh, code that's been copied in multiple different languages and different services to work around these weird rules. And like if one forgets it, did they really forget it? Did they not know about it or did they not? using that for some reason and the one you based your new code on is that the right one is that the authority like how do we manage that stuff just because really messy uh, so uh, as your organization grows uh, there's a lot of pain on schema on read if you weren't like really just fastidious about it yeah and, and that's a very good term for it now i want to back up real quick so the top four on the entire list were all relational databases Number five is MongoDB. So it's one of these document databases. And number six is Redis, which was from the previous, you know, key value store. So, so they're, they're very popular, still behind the relational, but they're, they're up there, right? Like we've got, we've got two inside the top 10 that belong to these document and key value things. Now, ironically enough, I thought this was hilarious. So when I first started doing these, these show notes the other night, I got down here to the document stores and, and Jay-Z and I have, have experience with MongoDB, um, with DynamoDB. And I don't, it's like you said, I haven't had a chance to play with Cosmos much. I haven't touched Couchbase and I haven't done Databricks, but I have a decent idea of the flavor of these things when you're talking about the document things. And, and Joe, Joe here had, a situation the other day that would have been super easy to do in SQL, which was, Hey, I need to know all the records where they don't exist in this other set of data. 
like in in SQL, that's literally, hey, select star from this table where not exist and select star from that table. And like, it's that easy, right? And it could be a self-referencing table. Doesn't really matter. The query is that simple. And I I saw him chatting with, with another person for like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes trying to figure out how to do it in Mongo. And, yeah, way too long. And what was your, what was your final solution? To do something completely different. Yeah, do it <laughs> like in code, right? Like, change the rules. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was the only solution for that was basically like, I'm just going to kind of do a dumber query, get too much data back and filter it in code. And then ultimately we decided just to do something else entirely because it was a pain. But it kind of example there was like, imagine like a, a table of addresses for people and you say like, I need to know I need to find people that have a Florida exist uh, Florida address that have never had a Georgia address. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And there's another example of something like it's easy to say and in relational database, like, okay, yeah, I can do a, you know, select star from addresses where blah, blah, blah is in Florida and not exist Georgia, you know, done. Uh, and Mongo is like, okay, uh, I, I know I can do it in two queries, but <laughs> what I really like to do is not do that. And yeah. So, trying to figure out it was really tough and we were trying to like figure out how to aggregate and maybe we could do some sort of sum and like maybe if we give the Georgia addresses a negative big number then oh that's just terrible it was really ugly yeah it's it's funny because it just points out that there you will get people on both sides of the camp right people that are like oh relational database is where it's at and then you get other people oh no mongo right like this document database is where it's at and the reality is they both have really good places right they they both do some things perfectly right and then there are other things that it's like man i really should not be trying to use this hammer to cut that piece of wood in half like it doesn't make sense right and that was one of them and it, it just illustrated it so perfectly because it I didn't even respond to the conversation because I was like, well, I'm working on something else, but, but I did start looking up stuff. Right. And a Mongo has links that are sort of like joins sort of, and they also have this lookup function, which I think was mentioned. And it just didn't work the way that they wanted it to. So it's like, man, there probably is a way to do what you wanted to do. It yeah. probably wasn't going to be performant and it was probably not going to be readable by 99.9% of the population. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think we started looking at doing map reduce to, to kind of like go, okay, go get all the Florida's now go get all the Georgia's. And now we're going to put them together. And it's like, Oh man, what am I doing? Like, let me just get this person's addresses and <laughs> check it in code real quick. Yeah. It, it's crazy. But all right. So on the flip side though, the things that it, it is really good at, is like what you talked about earlier. Uh, let's let's say that you placed an order and and you're you know you checked out you bought some stuff. That's real easy in something like a document database because every record basically is a snapshot, right? Like you write a document, you've got this is where like Mongo is pretty interesting. Instead of putting my whole name in there like Alan Underwood, you can actually have a link to my to my user document, right? It's they sort of make one hop joins easy. If you got to go past that, it's not. Um, so you could link to that. So if my information ever changed, like, you know, Alan the great or something, like if I changed my name, then it would be there. But then the rest of the document is filled out, right? Like you have your order information, your total, your, your order details It's all in that same and pictured as a JSON document, because it's basically what it stores. It's perfect. Like that's just an easy solution. 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's really nice from a user perspective because that lines up really nicely with code because it's the way we tend to think about things. So you say like order.get, cart.get, user.get, you know, things like that, that, uh, that come back and it comes back is basically a whole object. So like the whole, uh, we didn't really get into it, but relational databases, there's a, a big mismatch between like the way the data is stored and the database and the way you typically code. And it's like, there's this uh, object to relational mapping, <laughs> you know, ORM framework that usually kind of sits in the middle and helps you kind of navigate that a little bit, but that's its own whole, you know, big turd of wax to deal with. <laughs> uh, so Mongo is just like, no, you, you ask for an order. Here's your order. And here's everything that comes along with that order. If you need other stuff, you know, go get that other stuff separately. Yeah. And, and so some more things here on the document stores. So we already mentioned their schema on reads. So you basically get in whatever, right? Whatever they put in there, you get out, you have to know how to use it. They also, it seems like a lot of them have SQL built on top of it, but it's usually for very easy use cases. Like yeah. Mongo has an amazing, in, in my opinion, an amazing set of, of like, I don't know that you want to call them command line, but it's just uh, querying tools. But it's more it more looks like code than it does look like SQL, right? Yeah, and like it's really powerful, like the ability to filter and stuff. That it's like by default uh, regular expressions and and the ability to project things. Like here's here's an example of something that for whatever reason is always stuck in my head. Uh, Newegg. If, if you went to Newegg and you want to look for motherboards, that's easy enough. Okay, well, what if you want to look for motherboards that only had USB-C uh, or, or, or didn't have USB-C on it or whatever? E- either way, in, an, in a relational database, what are you going to do? Every time a new port is added, you're going to add that to your table? Right. So you have yeah. a motherboards table and now you're going to have, okay, well, as a USB A, well, how many does it have? Oh, so that means to be an integer column. I don't know. Mongo gives you the ability when you query, you can say, Hey, just give me back records where it has this field or it doesn't have this field. Right. Like that's yeah. real easy. Like it's sweet. So you don't ever, my point is you don't have to go back and back update the, the 10 billion motherboards that have existed from 1990 to now. You don't yeah. have to touch them again. The query engine and the fact that those documents didn't have them on it just work. Where in where in a SQL database, you have to go modify that table, which whether you know it or not, is touching every single record of everything that ever existed in that table and it's updating them all. So, you know, there are things like that that make it really sweet and a really nice use case for a lot of things that you might do programmatically. Oh yeah, that's funny you mentioned about relational databases too. Um, whenever uh, the the shape of your output can be really different from the filters, and so you end up almost like writing two queries sometimes. You're like, this is this this is about the things I want to get out, and at the end I'm like, where ID is in, and then we do like another query, and then the the query optimizer has to figure out how to kind of put all that stuff together. But it's it's real painful to have to to almost like write your queries twice when you get uh, complex because it's you're already dealing with a complex use case, and now you're just adding this really verbose kind of weird model around it. Oh, and that's, you know, that's actually a really good point that I don't know if we made clear is when you are modeling something for a document database, you really have to think about what your end 
usage is going to be of those collections, right? Because the way they're performant is you just go get the document you need to fill out whatever it is you're trying to fulfill, right? In a relational database, you don't care. In a relational database, you're just trying to make the data as small as possible, more or less. In the document world, it's, okay, well, if I'm going to load this page up over here, what data do I need on that page? That should all be in one document, right? Like that's, and so there has to be a whole lot more upfront thought go into what you want to put into a collection in order to make that actually work for you in a performant and, and functional way. So yeah, data modeling takes more time. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Yeah. We said to say um, how common key value stores were, by the way. How, how common are they? How common? I would say for programmers to deal with directly, uh, kind of rare, uh, uncommon to rare. Uh, how often they're involved in complex systems that you're using, like other databases and stuff, like, oh, very common. Yeah, yeah, like Redis is a perfect example, right? Like yeah. you may not be interacting with Redis a lot, but it probably is being used behind the scenes to, yep. to cache data from your various different data stores and whatnot. And etcd, like if you're using Kubernetes, you're using etcd constantly. Yeah. Just don't know it. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. What else we got? Uh, we already said that you can have different types of documents in there. Don't even matter. There, there's no correlation whatsoever. Uh, I did. It, w- one other interesting thing that's worth noting is when we say document, again, it's, it's more like a JSON blob. If you want to think about it like that, that's more or less what you can envision for all these things. That means you can store nested objects, nested collections, nested objects of nested objects. You can basically put whatever you want in there, right? Like I think your only limit, at least in something like Mongo is the size of the document you put in there. And, and I don't even remember what the max is now. It might be like 50 meg. I don't know. Max Mongo. That's right. Size. Let's see. What's it say? Um, 16 megabytes. The maximum BSON document size is 16 megabytes. So not 50. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's still a bunch of data, but you know, there, there is a limit and you you probably want to be thinking about what you're doing if you're trying to cram that much into a single document. Um, and then the last thing, this one's kind of interesting to me they can be very performant, like extremely performant, but they also are very much like a relational database in that because you just sort of, have, and it's a little bit weirder in things like MongoDB, you have to create proper indexes, but these indexes require that, you know, something about the data and the collections, right? Like if you have a, if you have a person's collection, you're going to assume they have first names and last names, so you're going to create an index on that stuff, but that, but that means that for documents to actually be indexed properly, they need to have those properties. Right. So, um, another thing I found interesting is you have to manage the number of connections to the database. Like it's a different beast than, than something just like a, a pure relational database. And how common are these? I would say uh, at this point, I don't consider NoSQL to be or the document databases to be an exception to the rule. I think they're like still choice B. Um, so I would say common. Uh, yeah, someone tells me they're working with Mongo. I'm not like, oh, wow, what's that like? <laughs> cool. <laughs> you know, I have a slightly different take on it. I think that if you're working in an enterprise is almost de facto a relational database. 
I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of little startups or I don't little, I don't want to sound derogatory, but smaller startups and, and companies that are sort of like techie focused, I wouldn't be surprised if they go this route because it's just sort of the, uh, I don't know the, the cool, the cool thing, but it, it's, it's programmer friendly, right? It's, is what programmers think of when they think about this stuff. And yeah, they tend to scale better too, uh, like scale easier. So what it means is you don't have to put as much like thought into uh, like pricing you know, uh, your 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 servers uh, up front as much. Yeah, that's you don't true. Have to guess as much. That's true. It, it's the the only thing. And I remember we were looking at Mongo years ago, and the thing that sort of pushed us away from it at the time was the licensing. Remember, it, it was it, it's a GPL type license, and there was so much gray area in. If you use it, do you have to open source your application because you're using Mongo in your stack? I still don't know the answer to that, but I'm assuming the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, they, they did that weird thing. Remember where they changed their license uh, after um, uh, like AWS did the thing where they like started hosting uh, Mongo, yes. selling it, and Mongo got annoyed with that. And so they changed their license and basically tried to kind of prevent people from hosting it and selling it because they wanted to be able to, to do that. That was a whole big stink because now people are like, oh, it's not open source anymore. Uh. Yeah. Um, which I mean, that's, uh, I don't mean to say like, like, you know, as if that's like not a valid argument or whatever. It's just it, it caused a stink. And so it was a it was a whole big debacle there in the open source community. I Yeah. Elastic went through that with them. Everybody did. They all changed the licenses because, yeah, hey, why is this company making money off what, what we're putting out there for free? Yep. Yeah. All right. So. uh I, I'm going to do the bag this time because I would like more than two or three stars. If, if you've got it in you, <laughs> if if you haven't left us a review and, and you like what we've been doing and you know, it puts a smile on your face. We make you laugh or giggle once or twice. And you learn something along the way, please. If, if you get a chance, uh, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify, not Stitcher anymore, audible, Audible actually allows you to do it. So if you have an Amazon account, which I, I would believe that everybody listening to this probably does, you know, uh, if you wouldn't mind, drop by and leave us some kind words and uh, leave a smile on our faces. So, uh, yeah, the more stars, the better. If you can get six in there, that'd be amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was trying for NPR there. It came out creepy. Sorry. It did. That was a little creepy. That's fine. All right. So did you did you end up coming up with a game for us? Uh, no, it didn't go very well. I tried to ask ChatGPT to come up with trivia questions for us, and they came out just terrible. It was like giving interview questions. Mm. I was trying to do it around databases. I did, I did get a little bit better by saying like in the style of Jeopardy, uh, but it still didn't didn't come out. So we're great. <laughs> it was like it was like the acronym for uh, for SQL. I, it came up with a couple of good ones. I'll go ahead and give you an example of one here. Oh, I closed it. Uh, <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, I closed it. But it was basically like. Um, uh, this field is used as the primary key for uh, looking up documents in Mongo. Object so, ID. Yeah. Uh, so object ID is the the type order, but the underscore ID I think is the what it was looking for. Oh, that's right. Yeah, underscore ID. You're right. Yeah. And uh, the, I asked it for Postgres, and it uh, it said this keyword is used for adding columns to a, a database table. And I was like. Oh. Really? I think I might know. It's add, right? Uh, was it alter? No, I don't know. Well, that's alter table. Yeah, I don't know, man. Okay, so so we failed. Oh, yeah, there. so yeah, I guess it depends on how you. Yes, that's why I was like, uh, they're both just kind of okay. Yeah, 
Yeah, so we came unprepared with mental blocks today with Outlaw out, so apparently he's the glue that binds us here. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll be skipping the game today, and uh, we'll have something ready for next time. Oh, yeah, it's alter table and add column. So I don't know which one of it was looking for because I closed the window. <laughs> hey, I don't think you say, the answer anyway. Didn't you say GPT has, has um, taken a slide here recently? Yeah. That sounds funny. Like, and th- th- I'm going to be exaggerating here to make your point, but like, I'm like, hey, can you write me a trivia question in the style of Jeopardy? And it's like, no, I can't. Uh, Jeopardy is uh, a legit company. They've got a, you know, they give you like a paragraph about how they're not going to be able to uh, generate that for you because of uh, copyright. And so you have to kind of like phrase it in weird ways, like in the style of a quiz show where you answer with a question. <laughs> and even like we talked about this early on, when I was trying to get it generate a picture of Octocat from GitHub, and it just wouldn't. Uh, it's gotten so much worse now. It's like you try to ask about a recipe and it's like, well, I don't want to tell you, you know, you might have allergies. So I don't, I don't really want to answer your question about how to, you know, boil an egg. <laughs> like, come on, just tell me how to boil the egg. I know, you know, <laughs> <laughs> tell me the best way. Yeah. That's yeah. the unfortunate thing is, you know, all that's coming about because people are suing left yep. and right for this free service that they've had access to. Hey, yeah, how I do I get rid of this cough? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you should consult your doctor. It's like, dang it. <laughs> yeah. Which so before, before it was like, hey, take some Robitussin and whatever. And then somebody died or somebody got really yeah. sick. And, and now everybody's suing. And yeah, now now the platform is falling apart. Yeah, I miss, I miss the good old days. I haven't tried any of the self-hosted options or, you know, there's some other ones where you can kind of run it on your own. Like I saw a cool device the other day. I forget the name of it. Uh, it's designed to basically be in a kind of a, a generative AI in your pocket, uh, similar to a phone, but minus the inter- internet connection. Oh, like, interesting. Like so it's all self-contention. Yep. Nice. Yeah. I'll look up what that is. Um, but yeah, but uh, yeah, I've not been having as much fun with GPT lately. It's, it's, uh, stinks like, and I don't think it's me just kind of like, you know, bumping into the, the edges of it, whatever. Like it, I think it's actually gotten a worse than it was a year ago, a lot worse. And it's probably seriously lawsuits and, and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, okay, we got, we've got to dial this thing back. Yeah. yeah. It's a shame. Yep. All right. So next up on our list of databases and, and when you'd want to actually use it, um, time series database systems. Uh, so the popular ones, InfluxDB, which that was surprising to see me above the next one, which is Prometheus. Then KDB, graphite and timescale db so i'd only heard of two of these yeah prometheus by far is uh really kind of grown over the last couple of years so i don't know if it's just out of date I don't, I don't know how they get the rankings but i feel like prometheus is more than caught up now and that they should be the champion of the category i'm trying to see so influx is number 28 and prometheus is number 50 i find that i find that it may not be wrong for one reason. Usually when you think about Prometheus, you think about monitoring, right? Like, so other services, other servers, whatever. And I think InfluxDB is more for development purposes. So maybe that's why the popularity is skewed a little bit. Um, yeah, that makes sense. But but either which way, this one was sort of hard for me. I think this one's a schema on read. Because yeah, I believe so. It, it's mo- it's kind of like a key value store, except your key is always a time. Yeah, and it makes yeah the key is always a time, and you can do some interesting things because of that. 
Uh, schema on read, I believe, is uh, a big advantage to that. It's like you might start adding metrics at any given point, and you, you shouldn't have to like pre-negotiate that. That's not somewhere we want to start like enforcing nulls or not nulls. Like that's a good example of like when you're getting monitoring data, you kind of want to get whatever you can get. And if some field is null or missing, or whatever, that's important, and you don't want to throw away that whole data point just because some aspect of it's missing, because that in itself can be useful information. Yep. And these these time series databases, even though they're again, I think if you really want to think about them, they're sort of like specialized key value stores. The thing that makes these better than using something like a key value store, or even a relational database, because technically you could do this in, in just about any of them, is these have built in things to make them work very well for time series. So um one of the things is like you can query instance in time. You can query ranges. So, hey, I want the last 15 seconds. I want the last 30 seconds, whatever. Or give me give me five minutes of rolling data. Like those are all types of things that are built into it. And one of the really crazy things is you can join data on ranges. So, you know, let's say that you have data from your CPU and your RAM that we're coming from monitoring of one of your services out there, you can actually join those and graph them together in the same instance across a, a, a graph with times because it knows how to join that stuff properly and bring those values together. So that's all really cool stuff that these time series databases give you. You imagine like trying to do some of the stuff that you do with like a, a, something like a Prometheus where like, like I want a seven minute rolling average over the last uh, six hours. And I want you to bucket by the unit that makes the most sense. Like uh, uh, something like a Grafana Prometheus user case, like that's no problem. Like you, you know, it's going to be how you express that. It's probably going to be like four words, you know, and like most of those came from a drop down. but uh, trying to write it like a relational query or a document database query that captures the same thing is going to be harder, especially with things like dynamic bucketing and stuff like that. And it's just kind of built into these engines because they're really, uh, they're able to make a lot of, um, it's not even assumptions, they're just able to take a lot of shortcuts because of the kind of use cases that they support, which is like aggregations and bucketing and a lot of stuff with the around times. So like everything is organized around it. You can't choose another key. And so everything's just going to be able to work like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff. Now, I will tell you, if you come from a document database world or a relational database world or whatever, querying this stuff is a mind bender because it's a, it's a very specific um, language. I don't. It's more like math equations is what it looks like a lot of times when you put these things together. But the structure of the queries is very specific to time series type things, and you have to learn how you do it right. Like you don't write joins and things like you do in relational. You'll do pluses and, and commas, <laughs> and so it's it's a very math approach to sets of data. Um, but it's it's incredibly powerful. Like Jay Z said, you know, you're trying to create some sort of crazy graph, and you know, you got you got a query that's not very long, and and it does it all. It's like magic. Yeah, and it's funny when you you see some or talk to somebody who really knows how to do stuff, and like you're trying to do some weird thing that's just weird. You're trying to do all these weird gymnastics, and they're like, "Oh, that's just a uh, asymptotic quintile. It's built in." And you're like. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I forgot about that one. <laughs> I, I heard you. <laughs> I heard what you were saying, but yeah, yeah just, just subtract the arctan from one. Oh, and man. You got it. Exactly what you're looking for. You're like, okay. That's so funny. 
Yeah. Why didn't I think of that? I, I had, I do have some links here. I, I did Prometheus because I'm more familiar with those. Like I've actually done Prometheus. I have links to some of like the Korean basics as well as like the, the functions, the special functions that it has available. Highly recommend going and looking at that stuff just so you get an idea of the types of things that these, these time series databases will do. And again, these are used for monitoring. Like Prometheus is almost ubiquitous now with, with, um, you know, any kind of service monitoring. If you're doing something like in Kubernetes or even your own on-prem stack, a lot of people will run Prometheus with Grafana because they just work really well together. And they have hooks in so many programming languages for exposing metrics from applications into those. And so they're extremely useful. I mean, Think about a do-it-yourself data dog is kind of what you're talking about here, right? That's that's more or less what you're what you're doing. Um, it's always been one of my dreams to set up a, a Grafana dashboard, like for my house, or multiple dashboards, but like kind of flip around, see the data. I'm just too lazy to set it up. Do one day you can. Hey, if you if you ever decide to build a NAS, get Unraid and run like it. One of the top downloaded. Uh, databases and and other functions with it are Prometheus and Grafana. Like nice. you can actually see the stats in Docker is pretty cool. Oh. Yeah, I set it up for um Factorio once, so I could kind of like get in there and like see my power consumption per widgets built uh, over the last hour. Did you for yeah. real? Yeah, yeah. I mean, someone else set it up. I basically just followed the instructions and ran in Docker. You know, but That's yeah, the, they just uh, there was a plugin to the game that basically just dumped out the metrics to a file. And then Prometheus was able to pull that in, and then somebody bundled a bunch of dashboards together. It was great. That's pretty excellent. Uh, so one one other thing that you mentioned, like quantiles, right? Like quantiles and histograms. Those are like two very special things that that time series databases allow you to do in a non completely insane way. Is it's bucketing more or less? So. I'll give you an example. If if you have something that like processes files, right? You might have this, this like quadrant type setup that says, Hey, show me files that are between zero and one megabyte and one and 10 megs. And, and show me how long it takes to process in those. And so now you have this thing that can give you like a heat map and that's kind of what quantiles and histograms give you. And that's super powerful. And I can't even imagine how difficult it was to program that behind the scenes to get it to work. But that is one of the things to where you can actually see a chart of, oh, this is how everything's behaving. And these are these are kind of where things are lying on my heat map. So super, super powerful stuff that's really, I don't want to say easy, but not difficult with the time series database. You know, it's one, th- one thing that's kind of funny about uh, at least with, with Prometheus, I imagine a lot of other time uh, databases too, is uh, a lot of them are kind of sample based. So they go out and they read the settings at the time that, uh, you know, that they take the reading. But that doesn't mean that those numbers were static. Like those numbers might be written a thousand times for every time that data is actually scraped and pulled. And so it's just kind of interesting to, to think about is like all these little snapshots in time. And because the, the data itself is so... Uh, I don't want to say imprecise, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's the, you're taking these like samples from 1% of the real time, you know, these, these actual like analog values, whatever, uh, the whole kind of thing is really built around patterns rather than like the real numbers. A lot of times it's interesting. Yeah. Cause the calculations would take a long time to eat up 
Oh yeah. More processing than what you'd probably have available. Yep. So here's a couple of interesting things. Like we talked about scalability with the other things. So influx DB itself, when I was looking into it, it is actually set up to scale via clusters. It said that you had to have meta and data nodes. So two separate. And they said that basically they talk back and forth. So it's set up to handle being able to scale out horizontally. Prometheus was a little more interesting. I have a link here to an article. Um, it's, it's sort of bizarre. Basically you can set up what they called a federated. And there was another one too, but the federated was basically, you have multiple Prometheus, uh, instances running and one can query another and they sort of aggregate up through one. So it's a complex setup to where you're having to manage a decent amount of infrastructure to make it happen. But they said one of the big problems with that is your storage bound, right? Like, so those, those um, leaf nodes underneath that top one, that top one's having to store all the data from those leaf nodes too. And so, so it, it can get really expensive and it doesn't grow well. Well, that was another way they said you can actually scale it is you can have attached storage, right? So, think probably something like GCS or, or S3 or something like that to where it can share that stuff and you can archive it because that's another thing like data grows pretty ridiculously over time. And a lot of times we've seen if your Prometheus node gets blown away, if you run on something like Kubernetes, all your data resets, like it's like you're starting over from nothing. And that kind of sucks when you're trying to look at it from a, a historical point of view. But, um, scaling looks like it's very dependent on on each individual database here it's not more like a set rule like with rdbms's yeah um let's see had some good practice type stuff in here for prometheus but you know we won't get into any of that and great for alerting too uh so not just dashboards pretty looks but uh, very commonly used for uh, monitoring yep all right, so this next one's interesting. I think you've played with this a little bit, Jay-Z, and, and I've bit, yeah. definitely done – I've played with it more in relational databases, but the next one up is graph DBs, and I, I'll let you start this one off. Sure. So uh, most popular ones here, Neo4j. Uh, I think this is old. Uh, DGraph is a popular one now that I'm not seeing in here, but anyway. So Neo4j, as Azure Cosmos DB, Aerospike, Virtuoso, Arango DB – uh, GraphDB has really come up in the last couple of years as a more as a popular choice. Um, now that that's one that's kind of built around GraphQL as a query language, is, which has been a nice fit. That's why I uh, that's one of the ones I've looked at. Uh, and what's really nice about it is that it makes certain things that are really hard to do in other database systems like trivially easy. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, you know uh going to be fast but it just the ability to solve problems that you couldn't otherwise like i mentioned that one where it's like i want to know pro- products that were purchased by customers who bought products that were purchased by these other customers that's pretty much the query you would write in graph database except it would probably be arrows you know there would be you know product arrow item arrow product you know whatever it's going to be very easy to, to reason about read maintain like uh, it kind of speaks that language so when people are needing to query like your your person sales or marketing whatever it's really easy to translate that stuff which is nice 
but a lot of times it is going to be really slow to like make updates or uh, you know kind of inserts too because this whole graph of connections has to be maintained. Uh, the data can get really big if there's like a lot of you know uh, like different nodes edges. Uh, it's, it basically has all the same problems that you have with graphs and when you're just programming like graphs and trees. And so, uh, you know, all the same stuff, like all those kind of algorithms come into play for like nearest neighbor, traveling salesman, um, shortest path, all that sort of stuff, A star. Uh, so really cool algorithms and it's all built in. So it's really nice to be able to have, uh, to not program that stuff explicitly in code and just be able to kind of outsource that. So if you've got a lot of use cases like that, it may make sense to bring in a graph database. And I, I cannot stress how easy it is to query those really hard things compared to like a relational database where you're going to have like four nested, nested sets of queries and it's going to perform like crap. Well, the, the example you gave earlier, right? Like, um, I, I don't even remember how you worded it, but like, show me, show me all the people who have friends in Florida that also have friends in Massachusetts that took a flight last week, right? Like, that kind of thing in SQL in any kind of SQL database, you're doing one by one joins and unions and and all kinds of things to get to that one very specific thing. Whereas in this graph database, it's it's like English. You you basically the query is exactly what you said. And that's one of the things that's interesting. So I have a link to their data modeling page on Neo4j. Neo4j's website has a lot of killer resources, like seriously good stuff. But the cool part is when you're modeling their data, they say, Hey, it's almost like you're drawing it on a whiteboard. You know, uh, the examples they gave here that were actually pretty easy were, okay, Tom Hanks acted in cloud Atlas, Hugo weaving. Yeah. Weaving also acted in cloud Atlas. So, the acted in are your edges. Those are the arrows that point to something from a node, right? So you have nodes and, and edges in these graph databases and you start drawing this out, right? Like you have little bubbles with, with Tom Hanks and, and this Hugo weaving. And then you have another bubble that's cloud Atlas. And then you have another bubble down at the bottom. That's like uh, directed, you know, the, a director, and these things all just have arrows pointed to each other. And that's ultimately how you model your data. And it turns perfectly into a graph database model. And then when you query this stuff, it's very much like show me everybody that acted in, um, what was the one cloud Atlas? Yeah. Cloud Atlas. Yep. It's yeah, like the Kevin Bacon game. Like, uh, you know, the game where like someone says uh, a character and you have to like, figure out how to get back to Kevin Bacon, whatever. Oh, Is it, yeah. Isn't it Kevin Bacon? Yeah. How many uh, degrees sorry, of separation cool. type thing? Yeah. And like these databases are like designed for this. You can like, Tom Hanks and be like, okay, here's the shortest path or here's three, you know, various paths or whatever. And it, you can, uh, it's, uh, it, it's really nice because the model, it maps to how you think. And so like we said, it's like, I want to know movies that Tom Hanks, uh, or I want to know how many degrees of separation between Tom Hanks and, um, Kevin Bacon that don't include uh, Meryl Streep, you know, mm-hmm. something like that, or that do include or whatever. And you can just say it and you, the way you query it is just like, that's like not in, in whatever. And it, that's it. And it pairs really nicely with like a relational database or something where the way you kind of feed it is like by creating these relationships. So it's like Tom Hanks, arrow cloud Atlas, uh, Tom Hanks, arrow, I don't know any other movies he was in. Um, big, big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great one. 
And so it's like it just you can kind of query that stuff very easily in relational, relational, draw a little arrow between those two and kind of stuff it into the graph database. And now you can just query this stuff in like a kind of English like language, natural language. Yeah. I mean, it, it's seriously when you come up with a use case that fits this, there is no better tool. Like there really isn't. It's just so good at it. Now, this is where I was mentioning I played with it and up at the top of the show, we said a lot of these relational databases have built everything on top of them. Like they've bolted on everything. SQL server has the ability to do graph database type functionality, but it's very awkward in the way you do it. The tooling's not made for it so much. You're still doing inserts and updates and that kind of stuff. And so you're not speaking the graph database language, but you're creating the models in a very relational database way. And it, it works, but it's not a great experience. Um, Whereas this is bespoke made for it. And it's amazing. Like it's just really good stuff. Yeah. And uh, some of the use cases you've got here, like a fraud and detection analysis, like, again, that's another case where it's like, you can express these things really easily. So like an example that we used to talk about a lot was be like, uh, show me computers that have had viruses on them in the last 90 days that have had users log in that have had more than three failed logins in the last year. And like, when I say that to like a security person, like they understand what I'm going for. It's like, Oh, we're looking for kind of malicious actors or bad computers that are associated with, you know, things that have gone wrong. So like these kind of two bad things that have happened together, that's very easy to express, very hard to query. But when it comes to like filling in that data, like we don't have to think about that use case when piling in the data. We just say like virus to computer person to computer, and then later when the person's doing it like that threat hunting and trying to figure out, you know, what happened or how to prevent something, whatever, they can kind of pull the stuff up and query those use cases in a really cool way and that they didn't have to think about at all when the, the, the thing first came up. Hey, would you say also, I mean, this, this brings up a really good point, like what you were just saying, all that data that you just mentioned a second ago with the logins and, and virus in the last 90 days and all that kind of stuff your primary source of that data probably was not a graph database, right? Right. Like it probably came from uh, either a data lake or an elastic search or a relational database or, or just logs, right? Like it could have been any number of these things. The graph database, at least in my view is usually a tool that you use to put data into when you have certain things that you're looking for, these relationships you're looking for. So it's, it's literally a destination that you are very purposeful about when you're trying to find out certain types of information, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like, so so things like, you know, we talked about like shopping carts and order systems and stuff like that. That's not going to go really well on a a graph database because you're going to be saying like, well, let me get this shopping cart and it uh, all the products that are show linked to it and all the pictures that are linked to those and all the prices that are linked to those and it's going to end up doing this like these giant graphs that like travel your entire like you know cluster that's going to be happening on every page request like not so great there it's great for discovery and you know it's it's not super fast but definitely not something that you're you're going to be wanting to do like millions of times a second on like Instagram or whatever but it it would be great for taking some of that order data and saying Hey, show me, show me, um, people of this age range that did this and they have friends that also are interested in this type thing, right? Like there's all kinds of, um, like, I don't know if AI is the thing, but, but relational type things where the like uh, suggestion type things are perfect for these types of models. 
Yeah, and like Facebook, the people you may know, or like LinkedIn has uh, similar type things. Like those things are great. Where they can say like, "Hey, um, let's find people that are related to this." Uh, or sorry, well, let's find people that also post pictures of things that you've posted pictures of. Right. And, uh, let's find people who have friends that are in common with you. Or let's have find people that work at the same companies. Or like these kind of use cases that a, a person can just kind of like write down a list of things and say, "Yeah, throw it into a big bag," and they'll shuffle up five at a time and say, "People you may know." And that works really well here. Well here, it's you're not going to want it to be your only database for that system because of the drawbacks that we mentioned. But for those use cases, it's just amazing. Yeah, and someone can can go from thinking that idea to having that out in production is really quickly. Yeah, and there's really not any other technology around that will do that for you in that easy of of an approach. Like you're you're yeah. talking about ridiculous types of queries in any other type of database system to make that happen. Yeah, can you imagine being like in a marketing meeting with someone on Facebook like a long time ago, and then being like, uh, "It may be great if we could like suggest groups that uh, have things that the person likes in them," and the person, the developer, being like, "Yeah, sure," and like I just released it. You know, it's like it's, it's crazy. Yeah, but that, that's the kind of thing that uh, is easier to do because it can be expressed in that same kind of natural way. Yeah, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but well, no, but but it's those use cases that that sound simple in the English language, but when you start looking at, at other data storage types, you're like, oh man, like I don't want to write that query. First off, I don't want to write the query, and second off, it's going to crash the server, right? Like it's going to be a problem. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's tons. By the way, this is one of those sites when I mentioned going to the database sites and looking at the resources. This one is fantastic. Like they have, they have all kinds of like use cases on here. They have white papers that go along with the use cases. So like you mentioned the fraud detection one. If you go to that page, they have um, a white paper on detection with graph data science, money laundering prevention, read the case study. Like there's all kinds of good stuff here. So highly recommend checking their site out. Um, what else we got on here? I don't know that we need to do all those. Uh, we, we already said why you would choose this, right? Like it, it just, it fits a use case. It's not going to work well anywhere else. Like that's, that's pretty much it. Um, and they even, uh, so this was really cool. I have a link to a video that they had, which is basically, Hey, why choose Neo4j? And it's not necessarily that it needs to be Neo4j. It's more a graph database in general. It's a minute and 20 seconds. Watch it. It's so good because they give, they give you kind of what we talked about right here, but you know, they have nice little visuals and stuff. So, so for sure, check that out. It's really cool. And they have built in sharding. So, I, I, I haven't messed with as much as you have, Jay Z, but like, I'm, I'm guessing if you had tons and tons of data, you probably need to shard it. Yeah, I wonder. I think it has to do more about this total amount of data that you're storing and less about the actual use cases. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because like you said, it's huge amounts of, of relationships and, and things that they're having to store, right? Yep. All right. Also, my cat just bumped the fader, so uh, I don't know if he did, did it now or did it earlier. Oh, that's <laughs> Actually, now that I think about it, so hopefully this sounds okay. Yeah, you so, sound uh, fine. A little, little baseball there, inside baseball. Uh, let, let's hope that Zoom wasn't just boosting it, and it's all going to be crazy post. We'll yeah, find we'll, out. We'll see. We'll find out. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's Outlaw's problem there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Outlaw. 
Yeah. Uh, Sorry, just kidding. Just kidding, because I know you probably heard that just now. All right. So so here's your favorite one. All right. Search engines. I do really like search engines. Is it your favorite? Uh, I think so, just because it's cool. Not not necessarily that it's like the like the most general use case, something you should use, but I just think they're neat. I agree. Hey, hey we also didn't say how common are the uh, graph databases. Rare. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think they are. Yeah. But, but man, if you have the use case for it, you should, you should look into it for, for real. Like they're, they're awesome. All right. I've never heard of a, like a company or organization that used it as their primary database. So it's like almost like by definition, you know, like you're starting out at like enterprise level kind of, or like, you know, large, um, evolved, uh, mature solution. Yeah. It's seriously a tool that, that you need, at some point, right? Like it, it's, it's not going to be your primary storage period. Like it, it can't be, it just, it's not suited for it. Yeah. All right. So back, back to the search engines. Yeah. Search engines. So search engines, uh, really nice. Uh, you use them all the time. Like Google is kind of like a big example, but they're, they're so weird. Like you don't really think of Google as being a, a database, but, uh, like Elasticsearch, Splunk, Solar, OpenSearch, MarkLogic, um, there's a bunch of other ones. I forget the name of, uh, Oh, Algolia is a, is a newer kind of common one. That's, uh, like very friendly with JavaScript. Um, so you don't have to have like a backend and stuff. They're just a nice kind of SAS, the product that you can use. And it's really nice. It's uh, very similar in a lot of ways to document databases, except they have extensive use of indexes that make it really easy to search by just about anything that you have stored in your document. And, uh, they have made trade-offs in order to kind of, uh, fit that use case of basically indexing everything. And so there's copies of the data ingestion, uh, takes a little bit more work and a lot of, there's a lot of catering done and a lot of work put into doing that sort of ingestion and doing that parsing of data up front when the data comes in so that you can retrieve things really quickly. And, uh, basically by searching by all sorts of kind of interesting, interesting, uh, little tidbits of data that you may not have known about ahead of time. And so it's, it's I think it was always like a fine tuning a little bit, on uh document uh databases but it's just really nice yeah it's fun to use it's the the interesting thing to me or there's a couple of interesting things to me over over the document databases which again this is schema i'm reading it's basically you know a document database on steroids for search but one thing that i find that search engines provide that almost nothing else does at least not in in any kind of standard way is the abil- the ability to search all your data right so the best example i can give is if you have a database uh, a relational database and you want to search everything like a global search like a google search or an amazon search um you want to search for everything that has the word blue in it right it to do that in a relational database, you're going to have to select star from people, select star from computers, select star from whatever, right? Like whatever, whatever tables you have, you've now got to sort of fashion this query to be able to go across all the things that you think you might want to look in. Same thing in a document database, as far as I know, right? Like you're going to have to tell it which collections you want to try and filter on for the word blue. Hold on. I just saved you guys a really rough cough. Um, <laughs> nice. Nice mute. But in something like Elasticsearch, you can just say, hey, search across everything and find me blue. And what's really cool, this is the second part of it that I think where search engines really come into play is they can score it, right? Like if you search for the word blue, 
when it comes to people, it's probably going to be like, oh, we gave it a score of like five because it's really low. But if it was searching through a product collection and index, then it's going to be like, oh, yeah, we think that this is probably more where the blue targeted word would hit. So we're going to give it a rank of like 75, right? So it can sort. We got another cough. This one's not muted as well, but uh, we'll see how it does in post. I didn't reach it in time. I tried. Um, so close. Man, hold on. All right. Well, I'm just going to talk here a little bit. Uh, I think what Alan's kind of getting at is that um, there's a lot of like interesting rules and, and basically the opti- optimizations kind of made on top of the document database where uh, that this supports these use cases. And so at the end of the day, you can say something like color blue and your search engine is very quickly going to be able to say, uh, you search for blue. Uh, we are going to weight color higher as a parameter and uh, maybe summary lower in case someone's having song lyrics or something in the product description. So we can kind of rank those and return those. Oh, well, let's go ahead and return the top 10 to you. And we'll tell you how many are uh, left uh, that we know about. And you can kind of cycle through those in interesting ways. So it makes a lot of use of like things like bloom filters that we've talked about a little bit about before and probabilistic uh, data structures. So it's really good about saying, uh, I, I, I forget the what there's like a clever expression for it. it's basically basically like we can tell you uh, either no we don't have it or maybe we do and so uh, some of the numbers are a little bit fuzzy and so that's, you'll see a lot of times search engines they won't give you exact numbers they'll say like we're showing you one through ten of thousands or tens of thousands or you know some sort of ordinate uh, ordinal uh, but they won't necessarily uh, show you the exact number. And it's because they took a shortcut in calculating that stuff. And that shortcut was designed to save you time. So that's why they can give you that answer back in zero seconds. But maybe be off by 5%. And that's okay if you're, you know, like looking at Amazon or something where you're probably not going to go past page two. Yeah. I mean, and sorry about that. Goodness, man. Um, getting over a cold and it doesn't want to let go quite yet. Um I'll try and hit that mute button if it comes up again. Yeah, you did good. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, everything you said, and that's what's really powerful about this stuff. I mean, on top of that, right, like, so it gives you those those scores, and it can even group things, right? Like, if you ever go into Amazon and search at the top. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> I'm not sure what I was going to say there. I'm, I'm right. We're all waiting, dying in, in, uh, in anticipation. Man, I don't know why. Don't know why it's doing this right now. Allergic to search engines. Something. Man. Cold? All right. Well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep going. So uh, some other things that uh, are often built in and might might have been what he was going into are just common features for search engines. So things like stimming or fuzzing. So that's like for example, if you search uh, uh or alias is another good one, or you might search for the word uh running. Uh, for shoes running shoes and it might also figure out that running is similar to jogging we've seen these things together so uh, we'll find running shoes jogging shoes walking shoes and also uh, runners maybe you know that's the stimming where it comes into play where it uh, will look at like kind of cutting off the suffixes of uh, words when you search them and so it's going to be able to say like okay we know you search for running and we're going to weight those higher maybe with that relevance score. But then we'll also show you runners and runs and ran and uh, all sorts of uh, other aliases and stuff. And just kind of sort those in there too in case that's what you're looking for. So they're really designed at uh, trying to meet you uh, meet you halfway as a human, which is really cool. 
Did you just stop? Well, I, th- I thought you were about to talk, so oh. I did. <laughs> it wasn't for very long. Uh, but right. No, I, I was just talking about aliasing and stimming and full text search. I wasn't sure if that's what you're going with the time about Amazon. No, so so those are those are also things. But no, like on Amazon, if you search for the word lens, right, and 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 the main thing, it might say, "Hey, do you mean lens and books? Do you oh, mean yeah. lens and cameras?" Right. And so it actually has the ability to bring back groups of things that it scored for you and said, Hey, I think these are the the things that you might be looking for. So that's built in as well. And it also makes for really nice uh, faceting. And so like uh, Amazon or something, you know, like maybe we'll have a, you know, you short search for blue, it'll bring back t-shirts and it'll say, all right, t-shirts. Now here are the sizes, mediums. We have 453 largest. We have, you know, 262, uh, price range do you want one to ten ten to twenty you know stuff like that it's gonna be able to kind of add that stuff up all really really easily for you and it's just designed for that it's uh the whole uh the, the tuning of this kind of document database is really optimized for those use use cases and so if you're building anything that's like a kind of a search like driven application it's got a lot of these things probably in common because we've kind of grown to expect those things from those kind of websites and so you can really build whole like e-commerce web page or there's a bunch of other types of web pages websites you can build around uh, search engines and uh, really leverage the search engine for so much of the use cases and your users are going to be really happy because it's the things that uh, that work really well for what they're trying to find and also uh, they're just really easy to implement so I, i like it now there is one particular case that they do not work well for as a matter of okay. fact they're terrible for so we mentioned what the document database is and again this is an extension of it you really have to think about how you're going to use that data up front because all that needs to be in the one document right so this is where they completely fall apart is if you need to query relationships so it's you can nest data in the documents right so if if you have um, an order thing, you could also have a nested document that's the person who ordered it, right? Well, what if you then want to say, okay, well, show me the people that have also placed order with these. You can't do that. Like, um, there's if you're going to nest a person underneath the order, and then you want to nest related orders under that, like you're not going to try and cram every piece of data that you could potentially ever query underneath this thing. It just does not traverse relationships. You can't do it. So you have to put what you can think of in that thing. And, and hopefully your use cases will work with that. If you need to go further than what the, the layer of nesting that you're willing to do, that's probably where you need to look at something like Presto DB or whatever the new break off of it is. I can't remember. I mean, we were trying to solve this problem a couple of years ago and we even talked to the people at Elasticsearch. Or like we went to one of the uh, Elastic conferences and they're like, yeah, you can't really do what you're trying to do there. And yeah, you got to know that, right? Like, and you have not just know it, you have to accept it and then be like, okay, well, how can we do what we're trying to do. Yeah. And so it's another one of those databases where it's like, uh, there's a lot of companies that even use them, but they're probably not going to be the primary database. And they're probably going to have a relational database that's kind of ultimately backing it. And you know, you think of something like uh, you've got an Amazon and they want to run a, a sale on uh, all products uh, from uh, Fender guitars. 
right? That's something that's very easy to say as a human. Search engine, though, you got to go in there and kind of update those prices. And uh, so if you imagine like someone coming from marketing and saying, well, I want um, people in these states to have sales on Fender items, uh, Fender guitar uh, products, and people in this state uh, get another sale. These people get 15%. These people get 10%. That might be something that you kind of think of uh, in a relational way or a graph way as being very easy to do. But when it comes to Elastic, you want that stuff to be searchable and facetable on the left there and kind of take those sale prices into account. That's really hard to do because now you're having to um, – you can't link that information. So you're going to have to put that information into the document, which means updating all those products, which can be potentially a lot of products. And it's just really gross for something like a sale. That's like temporary, you know, it can probably be done and probably is done, but it's not the best use case for it. Yeah. But uh, so I guess our, our final question on this one is how common are they? Not as common as document, uh, I think. Um, you don't think so? The, the industries, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, there's the industries that they're used in, uh, which can be security a lot of times and, uh, you know, e-commerce, obviously, uh, some analytics type stuff, like very common. Uh, but if you're working in, like, say, a banking operation or something, then there's a good chance you're not going to see one of those. You know, it's interesting you're probably right, even though like Elasticsearch has gotten huge, specifically out of the ones up here, right? And, and Splunk is massive; like it's used by oh yeah by well, enterprises everywhere. But it's used for so many different cases. But I think that the reason why these probably aren't more popular is because I think people abuse their relational databases. Like I think that's the real answer: is they yeah. cram everything into those and try and make them do everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And I was thinking that logging is a good example. Like if you're doing some sort of log aggregation, so you have like all your computer logs kind of, uh, going, uh, into a centralized log system, then it's very easy to go in there. The log system say like, show me all the logs from windows version 4.3 or whatever. And that's great. But then you, when you try to do something like show me, uh, show me all the logs, uh, from operating systems that have a lot of vulnerabilities, Suddenly it's like, oh, no, I mean, you got to have a list of them. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not information that you can really relate in there easily. So if it's not stored in the log records individually, then you're going to have a, a tough time pulling it out. And you're going to have to do some sort of other layer there ahead of time to say, first, go look that up and then drop in a list, which you can imagine could be potentially a big list. Yeah. So we, we've covered six of these things now. And for me, the takeaway is I don't love any one of these more than another. I don't hate any one of these more than another. Like I I think I even put it in my 2024 resolutions or whatever is that, you know, data should be put where it's useful, right? Like don't be afraid of duplicating data. If you have a relational database or you have a bunch of logs and you have some sort of need to query relationship type data, Maybe a graph database is interesting. If you have a need to be able to search on that text in all kinds of curious ways, use a search engine, right? Like there is no right or wrong answer here. I think to me, the wrong answer is when people know a technology, call it SQL server or call it Mongo or whatever, or even Elasticsearch. 
and they try to bend it to do the other use cases because they don't want to duplicate that data. I think you spend ridiculous amounts of time trying to make those things work the way you want them to. And you've run into so many problems because the underlying design didn't exist for what you're trying to do. And it just doesn't make sense. It makes more sense to sync that data to another system and use it the way that it's supposed to be used. Like that's, you know, not for everything, right? Like it doesn't make sense to spin up a whole new infrastructure if if you just have one little thing that you're trying to do, right? But if you're trying to, to do some core functionality for your business, do not try and bend something to your will. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, you can imagine like looking back at like a let's say the last three years of your organization, be like, oh, you know what stinks is that uh, we've had twenty percent twenty percent of our staff, our engineering staff working on trying to turn a relational database into a graph database for these two use cases. And I really wish we had just synced that data and used the right tool for the job because now we've got this uh, crappy, like half baked <laughs> uh, database system. That's still like totally, uh, you know, on the verge of breaking down every time we look at it and uh, we've got 20% of the staff working on it. So great. And now we feel like we're invested in it. We're never going to move off it. Yeah. And that's a horrible feeling. And unfortunately, that's always a 2020 thing, right? Like, oh, hindsight, if we had known, but that's, you've got to always take those steps with a little bit of foresight, right? Like how much of our product or how important is it to our product, what we're about to do? And if it's super important, should we invest in doing this the more right way? Yeah. Is this really want, uh, what we want our org to be? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully this is helpful. Uh, you know, if anything, you've been exposed to a bunch more things that maybe you, you hadn't even thought about before. So, and, and we've got six more, like somehow we made it two hours into this, which is crazy. Yeah. Like uh, before the episode, I was like, uh, we're going to have to chop this back. And, you know, I didn't even think it'd go this long, but yeah. So at any rate, we'll have all kinds of links here in the show notes for this. Like seriously, some good, good resources up there. Go check those out. And uh, yeah, now for uh, my favorite part of the show is the tip of the week and I'm going to hit me. All right. <laughs> oh, I got a uh, hot tip for you. Uh, so uh, there is a database we didn't talk about today that uh, works for multiple users. Uh, it's document oriented, document oriented, uh, distributed database is really smart about storing diffs between uh, changes. So it's really good at handling a lot of changes. In fact, you could even say it's designed uh, around the notion of uh, updating records rather than wholesale replacements. It's very efficient on storage space. Uh, it's open source. You already know how to use it. Uh, it's really great about um, history, although uh, you can't quite say it's immutable because you do have the option of rewriting history. Um, a couple downsides before I tell you what it is now. It's uh, slow at writes comparatively. <laughs> uh, it's not so great at reading either. <laughs> uh, querying filtering is not so great. And uh, it's not. it doesn't use SQL, although I'm sure somebody has built a, some sort of plugin or add-on for that. And the syntax is unfortunately kind of difficult to use. So it's not really fun to work with. Uh, but other than that, it's great. Mm. And that is Git. <laughs> and so well, I'll have a, I'll have two links. I forgot one, but uh, there's a couple people that have kind of made a, a bit of a joke and, uh, but I also have some kind of interesting uh, use cases for using Git or GitHub as a database. 
And, uh, you know, it's obviously not something you're going to want to try and serve a, a lot of traffic and a lot of updates or, or like online over. Uh, but it's kind of interesting because it is, uh, you know, in, in some ways very similar to a database in that it's, you know, stores data and it does kind of tick some of those boxes, uh, just obviously op- optimized for, uh, for storing code and working with those kind of changes and updates and not the normal type stuff you'd see in like a, a web, web uh, application. That's funny. It's sort of ridiculous, but I mean, there are creative people out there. It's not on DB engines. I don't understand why. It'll be number 420. Yeah. All right. So mine, I kind of, I kind of copped out because I initially like, I just, I could not think of a tip and, and I didn't go searching on Slack, which I should have done in hindsight, but I think this one's useful. So if you've ever done anything in Docker, like we have notoriously done things like builds and, and, and that kind of stuff inside Docker containers. And one of the things you can do is you can do a Docker CP to copy things in and out of your container, right? So if you have a file on your, on your local file system and you want to copy it in there, you can, or if you did something inside the Docker container that you're like, Oh, I actually like that. I want to keep it. You can Docker CP it out of there. Well, there is a command that will allow you to do that for Kubernetes as well. And it's kubectl CP. And I have a link to the documentation here, but it works almost identically to Docker CP. So you'll, you'll basically, you know, typically you'll want to tell it the cluster, the namespace, the pod name, and even the container name, because you could have multiple containers running in a pod. And then do a CP out of whatever directory it has and copy it down to yours or vice versa, right? Something from your local up to a pod in a Kubernetes cluster. I've used this so many times and it is incredibly helpful. So, you know, if you didn't know about it, it's a useful tool. I got a bonus. All right. Bonus tip. Uh, K-Sync. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the like bash tool rsync. R-Sync yeah. Yep. And what uh, rsync is often used for things like backups or if just syncing files between two systems. So you can say like, Hey, sync files bi-directionally or one direction. And what it'll do is basically anytime the change folders, uh, change happens on one side, it'll go ahead and, uh, remotely over SSH or it doesn't have to, it could also be local. It'll sync it. Well, K-Sync is like that, but for Kubernetes. So you can say, Hey, sync data uh, from this folder on this pod to this folder in this pod or from my local computer to a pod. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff is like, if, if you're doing that sort of thing too much, you got to kind of wonder about your use cases. Uh, but uh, it is a pretty cool tool for that. However, there's one big downside. And so I've never been able to use this tool. Uh, it, the way it works is it basically has an agent that you have to put up in the cluster. Uh, so if you are working in an environment where that's not really possible or it's, you know, too, too much trouble to, to make it worth it, then it's not going to work out really well, but it's pretty cool though. But yeah, basically you stick it up there, uh, in your cluster and it'll like, well, um, you, like it's almost like telepresence in the way that you kind of, uh, will run some stuff locally and it's going to communicate with the agent. And then uh, ultimately in the background, it's just doing cute code copies, uh, one way or the other. So it's pretty cool. But it just the every time I've ever wanted to use it, I wasn't able to because I didn't want to jump through the hoops to to get it set up. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that would have been amazing. I was about to say, man, this this is like the tip. Uh, but yeah, if you if you have to install an agent up in your cluster, there's probably many many cases where you just can't. Yeah. So still still very cool. 
All right. So my my next one, and this has to go. Sorry, <clears throat> and I, I want to mention too uh, that agent is actually a daemon set uh, on the nodes, which uh, I don't know if we really talked about daemon sets, but the idea there is like it's a uh, it's a sp- almost like a special kind of pod, except it's actually designed to run one on each node, which is the actual kind of virtual computer that you're on that can have multiple pods on it and so you can kind of imagine why it it needs to do that but basically that's how it's kind of set up so it's not just that you have to run some pod up there that you could spin up temporarily it's a it's a little bit more involved than that and depending on your cluster setup and your organization rules yeah security wise they're going to be like nope not not running anything on my node yeah all right, so this one goes back to the top of, of the show where I said that I'm about to start having some fun with uh, Cat8 setup and cabling and all that. So interesting thing, where I plan on putting my network rack or my server rack, whatever you want to call it, it's actually in a closet, but it's sort of beside where my electrical panels are. Well, one of the frustrating things is, if you ever look into code for electrical panels, there's supposed to be like three feet of space in front of the electrical panel so that people can access it, right? Like if an electrician ever needs to get over there, whatever, they need to be able to get to it. Well, unfortunately, there's only like a foot between that and where my server rack was going to be. Well, and part of that is because there's like a little closet system, uh, you know, system beside it. So I couldn't move it over any further. So what I found is I accidentally stumbled across these these network racks that are hinged to where they can swing out away from the wall. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Well, the problem is they were all hinged the wrong way and they're not reversible hinges. So they all swung to the right, which is toward my electrical panel. I was like, man. So I contacted a company. They're like, no, they all swing out this way. I was like, all right, well. And then I had this great idea like, man, I bet somebody's built a hinge. Like there's got to be a hinge. And sure enough, so this company Navepoint, who I guess is well known in the in the rack industry, like they, they make all kinds of racks and, and accessories. They actually have a hinge adapter that you can stick on the wall and you can have it swing either way you want, left or right. Well, I have room to swing it out to the right. It just can't be there all the time because, you know, there, there's that whole closet thing over there. So if anybody ever needs to get to my electrical panel, I can unhinge the thing, swing it out. They'll have access to it. And then when they're done, I have to swing it back. Now, the only thing I have to remember is leave enough slack in the cables <laughs> when they're coming in so that it will swing out, you know, however far it needs to. But but yeah, I thought that was a really cool find. So, um, in lieu of of better coding uh, tips, that that was what I had. So, hey, have you ever looked at uh, server racks, uh, desks with server racks mounted in them? I have. It's pretty cool, huh? I have, it's man. Tempting. Dude, yeah, it's have so you, large, but I'm surprised. Like, uh, actually, so you're getting ready to get your new office set up, right? Yeah, your work office, which should be minimal, and then and then your play office, which should be whatever you want it to be, right? Yeah. Have you ever? And I'm sure you have because you're all into the music stuff and you have all kinds of gear. Have you seen the desks that are set up that have like the the rack systems built into the desk so that you can put in like one U EQs and whatever else, like you know preamps and all kinds of stuff. Like yeah, they're built into the desk, man. Yeah, it's so nice. Uh, I really, uh, I really hate cables. Like, I'm just bad at it. I just can't. Like, I'm not good at cable management. I'm not good at like staying organized. And I get really flustered and like frustrated just anytime I even see cables. Uh, so I love the idea of having a desk with that stuff built in. And um, it's even like dumb stuff like um, 
uh, like power conditioners you can get like rack mounted power conditioners and stuff and so like you can have what's essentially you know a surge protector or whatever just kind of like there in the desk with the plugs on the other side so yeah. everything can plug right into it you don't have all these cables you got to deal with and stuff so uh, yeah i'm definitely looking at the desk like that and i don't even have that much stuff but just um having my audio interface all that stuff and like just trying to keep all the 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 cables to the back is very, uh, very exciting to me. Yeah, dude, it's it's ridiculous, but I feel the same way. I don't like seeing cables, and I mean, my podcast setup. We we've got so much stuff hooked up, like it's almost impossible not to have it. But man, I even dreamed of like having my road mounted, sort of not not completely vertically, but a little bit vertical to where you know you could see the stuff well, and then yep. and then and like you're talking about, like I want plugs behind stuff that you don't see. Um, that, so that dude that you turned us on to a couple episodes back, his music, Tony Anderson, uh-huh. you mentioned the video where they did a walk. Oh yeah. Studio. House. Oh, it was so awesome, man. Yeah. Like he had the, he had that custom made rack made that was, you know, it was, it was basically a network rack type thing yep. for, for all his audio equipment. And it was so beautiful. Like all of it was mm-hmm. so clean. And I was like, oh man, uh, I'm a little jealous. Yeah, for sure. And guess what? Uh, computers, like desktop computers, uh, fit really well in server racks too. The same, uh, you can get like the same size, basically 19 inch, whatever. Uh, and so, like Apple Studios in particular, like they make spe- specific uh, racks designed just for them. So you can kind of pop that in there into the like a rack and you know, the power buttons exposed just perfectly. And like all the cables for that computer, that, and the computer's not down on the floor, it's up, but you also don't have to see all that stuff. It's all hidden behind. I mean, it just seems great. Yeah, it, it's funny because. When you start looking at that stuff, you're like, man, they want some money for, for this, yeah. this little rack thing. But then you think about it and you're like, man, how long do you have your last desk? Right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> forever. I mean, forever. You, just, you had that cube thing that you were talking about that you got rid of. You've had that thing for, for years. 10 years at least. I mean, yeah. And it's just, it's like, you know what? It's worth the extra four or 500 bucks to have something that, that I'm going to be happy with. For the next 10, 15 years. You know what I mean? Yeah, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time around here. <laughs> right? A whole bunch. And I actually had the same thoughts when I was doing the server um, or the the networking setup was the same exact thing. Like, man, I, I could cheap out and get something a little bit less pretty or whatever, but I don't want to. Like, I, I want this to be something that doesn't drive me crazy when I go look at it, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I may do some uh, some photos and do some blog posts and stuff up there just to to show the the progress of this. But um, it'll be fun. I just found somebody made a desk with 14 14 U's oh. storage in it. Oh man, where's the link? It's nice. Share I'll that. post it. <laughs> it. They built a custom cabinet for it, and so like all the plugs are on one side, and it kind of yeah tucks in nicely to the side of the desk, and it just looks like almost like a filing cabinet, dude. But uh, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, we should have this in the in the show notes as well because I mean this is the kind of stuff that's just so much fun to to see. Oh yeah, it looks like that Tony Anderson thing too, right? Like he just yeah. had it all. So, it's so beautiful. And look at those little short patch cables. It's gorgeous. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm all in. Man, look at those switches they have down there. What in the world? Yeah, I don't even know what they are, but I want them. <laughs> right. Oh man. Yes. So at any rate, um, next time on hardware blocks, we'll yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about some stuff. Hey, but, but if you haven't already and, and you enjoy this, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, I think those are the big ones now. Does anybody else even exist? I don't even know. 
Yeah, Audible, kind of. Audible, yeah. Oh, yeah, Audible. You mentioned that last time. Yeah, and yeah, Google went away. Yeah, Google. Are they going Man, away? Man, don't get me started. Yeah, and uh, yeah. If you haven't left a review, like I said, if if you wouldn't mind, if you'd like to leave a smile, that'd be awesome. And and this will be codingblocks.net slash episode two twenty seven. You want to see the show notes? Hey, seriously, I would love to hear you guys' comments, guys, gals' comments on on this particular topic. I mean, this is usually a flame war type thing, right? Like, oh my my RDBMS is greater than your document DB or whatever, like. No, just really curious to hear what you're using and, and what you've liked or disliked about it or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, next time uh, we'll be getting into some other really interesting stuff too. So we got we didn't talk about any like OLAP stuff or anything, but I'm sure that's all coming up. Yep.